I do apologize because I have a um, question that is not related to the tech news. But before I ask you, I want to compliment Tyler and all the moderators on in this chat room. You are in a league of your own. It is superb. I am addicted Gigi. to it now. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. It is a, the best. Uh, the best. But anyway, I have been for the past few days, um, uh, wherever I'm in the chat room, trying to bring something up, which is close to my heart. Yeah. Um, it is about the uh, recruitment of a young woman into the cults on the platform, on the Clubhouse platform. Um, were you in the I, cult? You were in the cult room earlier? Yes, I'm yeah. just so overwhelmed. And the reason why it hits my heart, 40 some years ago, I was immigrating from an Eastern European country with two little kids newly divorced. And just by, for the grace of God, I was, I was not in a cult because those people befriend you and they, you're vulnerable and they make you feel that they're there for you and they're your friends. And it's very easy to fall a victim to that. So the reason why I bring this up, you have the greatest audience here. If you, at whatever point you feel it's going to be of comfort to you, if you bring uh, that up and let people know as much as we want people to share their bios i believe and i urge people usually when i speak up please don't share personal information even though i, I don't have any personal information myself because i i'm not worried if people will not follow me i'm not here to sell not here to to buy i'm not here to network i'm here to learn from people like you tyler from cal from tandra sab there are a number of great people here but few bad people can really um, can really uh, do damage to the younger people who may not even see through that. I'm Gigi, and I'm done talking. And again, thank you so much, Tyler. I am profoundly grateful to you. Thank you. You're very welcome. So yeah, there was a interesting conversation. Greg Duffy and I were, and and Justin actually were. <laughs> Justin was in there briefly, and he's like, "What cult are they I talking?" Left when, I know. Yeah, I left when Greg started calling people stupid that were. Yeah. Yeah. having serious trauma yeah and um we were listening to the cult room talking about cult recruiting in clubhouse and it wasn't clear what when they were talking about unless you hung out in there for a while and um and it it, it seemed like it was one instance that might have been i mean i listened for an hour half asleep but from what i could in my loose half asleep state it seemed like it could have been all a misunderstanding but um or people just being uh, extra careful and just wanting to get the word out and then i think the word's out i think people are talking about it so it's uh but i think clubhouse would people would flag i mean the the moderation tools built into clubhouse i think would make it a very difficult place to do that kind of thing people would flag it and they would get removed rather quickly and maybe everyone in the room would have got contacted even directly if they were really concerned about it. at least that's that's what i would hope anyways if clubhouse wasn't aware they are now hi, yeah hi. exactly yeah. just contribute yeah yeah surely what's up hi um yeah so it's really interesting that you mentioned that i didn't um go into the room myself i heard about it uh, there's a lady who speaks quite openly about this about the um the state of the app prior to the trust and safety features being introduced 
and she was <laughs> so I know she was on quite early and apparently people did recruit uh, they've been removed mm. but I think that people always do get through the cracks right so I mm -hmm. think it's about being vigilant and also I think now uh, people have been talking about the clubhouse support being a bit um, more uh, responsive because obviously they've hired so they've got a lot more people so hopefully that will be happening less and less and less especially if we remain vigilant ourselves and are able to spot signs of this sort of thing so yep. just wanted to add that Cool. Thank you, Shirley. I've got we've got a bunch of our regular friends on stage here. Gigi, who joins in for in the audience uh, uh, regularly, jumped up on stage just to um, share her heartfelt thoughts around the the cult recruiting room that was uh, here recently in Clubhouse. Uh, but there's a couple of new folks in the audience with their hands raised that I I don't recognize. So let's welcome up. York von Heimberg and um, and there was a couple others one one with a party hat even a couple party hats are all three party hats and so welcome uh, York and uh, the the other one's really challenging from Nambia uh, so I won't I won't try I'll wait for you to tell me how to pronounce that are you up on stage now York no it's not. no okay. Are they an Android user, maybe? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm wondering. And there still might be some bugs with uh, Android, honestly. So, But uh, just a couple new folks in the audience just wanted to, for those who are, are daring to jump up and say hi, I figured we would make a, a few new friends right, off the, right at the start of the hour here. And while they're joining, we'll just say, I hope everyone's having a, a very lovely start to their week. Hope you had a lovely weekend. We did meet uh, about seven hours ago for the other time zone, uh, the, the more European morning time zone, and fantastic conversation. Yep. I, I, I have to say, that might have been my favorite gathering we've ever had. That was fantastic. It's one of the, one of the most uh, richest content ones that yeah, I've, that, I've uh, seen I've, in the last a few, few weeks. A few great topics. Yeah. Uh, and then to recap, just before, you know, while people are still coming in, let's let's just go over. I had two huge aha moments. Um, and it's, a, it's you know, it's great when you have one super big aha moment, but to have two in the same time, it was fantastic. So the one of the first big aha moments was we were talking about VR and, and AR and the future of that. And because tomorrow morning there is an HTC ViveCon, it's their big annual conference where they are rumored to release two new upcoming VR headsets, um, which is great. And we're going to have a companion room during that event so that uh, the VR geeks can, can discuss in real time while they're watching the live stream. And Victoria, of course, is going to lead that. And uh, Michael will probably be with her in that. And others like Nicholas from Stockholm, who works in the industry and others. And anyway, so Nicholas jumped up on stage and he shared a document about what um, what is possible to the platform with a with uh, AR and VR in terms of and, and by the way I tweeted this from the Tech News Around the World Twitter account so you can see this document uh, at TNATW which is short for Tech News Around the World you'll have to scroll down about six tweets because we did a lot of tweeting during the session and you'll you'll see it's an image with an with a face with an eye and I'm going to read it here and basically when 
the VR goggles are on somebody's face, on the user's face, there is eye tracking uh, going on uh, by a company called Toby. And Toby happens to be founded by a friend of mine named John in Stockholm, uh, who has spoken at many of my events. And we hang out even when we're not doing events together. And uh, he's a lovely guy. And Toby has become the world's leading eye tracking company. And they have partnered with the VR headsets so that these VR headsets can do eye tracking of your eye. And here are, and by the way, one of the people who join us in that session often it worked, worked at Toby for many years until recently. And he was confirming everything. And Nicholas and him are friends in, in Stockholm. And so we were talking about what Toby's able to do for these VR headset manufacturers. So here's some of the things that VR headset manufacturers like Facebook and Apple and HTC Oculus and Google, whenever they get into it, well, they are into it already, but here's some of the things they can, uh, some of the data points they can get from just your eye, but just the camera inside the headset looking at your eye. They can tell your gender just from your eye. They can tell your age, your geographical origin, like what part of the world you're from, your biometric identity, your physical health, which includes things like if you've ever had concussions or Parkinson's disease, if you have obesity, of course, if you have vision disorders, uh, your cultural background, your mental health, if you've got depression or PTSD or autism or eating disorders, your personality traits, like if you're an extrovert um, or if you have uh, neuroticism, your skills and ability, like if you have a particular ability for chess or sports or math or hand-eye coordination, your level of sleepiness, which uh, that one could be pretty easy, your mental workload, if you've been consuming drugs like alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, um, ecstasy, or, or cannabis, and your cognitive processes, um, kind of your mental state, uh, if you're, uh, if you're Look, tracking into your memory bank uh, at that moment, or if you're doing internal reasoning processes, things like that. All of these things are discernible in real time to the platform, which now here's where it gets crazy. These platforms, notice it's Facebook, Google, Apple. And if you think about the big advertising networks in 2021 online, if you're going to advertise on the internet in 2021, you're probably going to advertise with Facebook or Google, and now uh, Apple's starting to get into that game as well. So what could they do with all of these data points in this new ad? You, you think Facebook knows a lot about you now? You've seen nothing yet. Wait until you get these goggles on, and then here's where the real, where, where the real aha moment was when I realized uh, Facebook it's well known with their Oculus headset. They do not let you use the Oculus headset unless you link it to your Facebook account. There's no way, there was no way around that. And, we, and Michelle, who joins us in that other time zone often, and she's on stage, and she said, well, actually, that, that's not really the plan, right? The plan is that you won't need to link it. And Nicholas would, <laughs> took it personally, did some digging. He's like, here, I'm reading it from the book right here. It says you got to link it. And Michelle says, well, you know, We'll see how it pans out down the road, but it it uh, it's, it made me real. I never real. I never it never occurred to me why Facebook had such a strong interest in VR, but realizing that it's the future of advertising and the future of um, kind of marketing, and it is a whole experience. And I think 
very legitimately, it's the future of games. It might even be the future of dating, the future of productivity. Yeah, for sure. I think so. But wow, the whole concept around the the kind of and medical condition, medical, of course. And by the way, that's a lot of what they're going to be talking about at this HTC Vive event tomorrow. That the titles of the sessions are things like, you know, the the future of medical and future productivity, and of course, all those things, of course. But the the what they can do with this eye tracking stuff is really impressive, like truly impressive. And a lot of, by the way, to be fair, a lot of it can be done now through cameras on. Um, your phone on your devices, but not nearly as accurately as as best I can tell. And that's why I want to get John in here, who is the co-founder of the company. To real, and but he's actually kind of removed from it now. Now he's a VC in Stockholm, which all the Swedes in the audience know. Um, but lovely, lovely guy, and uh, and he'll tell us, you know, what what to be, how to think about this. So I, I'm gonna p- be pinging him um, today and get him to join us tomorrow, hopefully in the morning session. Uh, so we can get him on the record for what's in store in the future. And here's Nicholas in the audience here raising his hand. Sorry, I didn't notice you, Nicholas. I was busy recounting what you were sharing with us earlier today. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, but I, I retweeted your tweet from the Tech News Around the World Twitter account, which I think you saw. So thank you for that. And it's just fascinating. So that was one of the big aha moments in this VR conversation that we got into. The second one was around... Um, there, what's his name? Is it Dave from Beijing? That's right. That was Dave. David, uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, Dave is clearly super bright. Uh, lives in Beijing, uh, ha- and then he w- works for, uh, works with, uh, uh, it, it, it partners with in some capacity the Chinese government around their mining of crypto. And he knows all the intimate details. And we were chatting in DMs. I just want to pull up his DMs because uh, he said a little more extra context that I can share here. David Chang is his name. And so he is working with the People's Bank of China, which is the main bank in China, um, and is involved in the Belt and Road Initiative and and Financial, which is the uh, Alipay, the number one payment system on the digital currency, the, what they call the DCEP, the Digital Chinese Yuan. And his group is the largest crypto mining group in China. And uh, he had a lot of inside information to share, which he did share. And holy cow, he was saying that uh, the, one of the key things of the Belt and Road Initiative, this, the, the world's biggest ambition, the world's biggest development plan that China's spending trillions of dollars developing the old Silk Road and ports all over the world and bridges and roads and trail line, uh, trains and everything um, uh, throughout, you know, uh, all the way from China over into Africa, really spanning the globe. And part of the reason that they're doing this is it's these loans that they're giving these countries to do these development projects. But in fact, they bring in Chinese labor to to do a lot of this work. So the money ends up back in China. The loan money ultimately ends up back in China, a lot of it. And then the country needs to repay this loan, which they often have trouble doing. And we dove into Zambia because I had just dove into Zambia a few days previously because it's the copper center of the world. Um, A huge percentage of the world's copper comes from Zambia. And China has been particularly focused on Zambia for many years now. And I couldn't figure out why. And then he was saying that the Belt and Road Initiative is a, is creating 
um, a digital Chinese currency uh, is going into the foreign reserves of these countries as part of these loans, which I had suspected that, but I'd never heard anybody say that. Certainly nobody with enough, you know, some authority on the topic. And he's Chinese and he lives in Beijing and he works with this firsthand. So and he sounded incredibly uh, believable on this point. Um, but where it got really interesting is I asked him this the following question and this blew my mind. I said, you know, hey, David, you know, uh, on this Belt and Road Initiative, a big part of it is these these copper mines in Zambia. And it seems like the, the Chinese are so focused on it that in there it seems like they want to corner the market on the copper supply uh of the trade. Uh, and if they could do that, then they could be in a position to force the trade of that copper be done in whatever currency they wish. Because if you want copper, hey, that's fine, but you got to do it in this currency. We're not going to take dollars or yen or euros or whatever. If you want to buy our copper, we cornered the market. If you don't want it tough, good luck. Go buy some copper somewhere else. Good luck with that. So they could essentially force that if they monopolize the corner of the market on the copper supply, then they could uh, use that as a very strong leverage point to introduce their currency into uh, part of this trade. And that uh, fits well into, uh, so Donna, you're flashing your mark there. Yeah, I mean, I uh, thanks, thanks for noticing. Yeah. Um, yeah, the conversation on the digital one has been around the developing uh, world for, for from the time that they they mentioned it. Um, and, and slightly, slightly different from what you're talking about, which would be that they would pay for goods and services, whichever goods and services they were in the African, uh, Central uh, Latin American regions, which are uh, rich with the minerals that they need in the digital one. And because it's trackable, they would track where it goes throughout the society and then back ultimately into, into China. And so... There was less a concern, it's the first time I've heard it, about that about countries keeping it as a reserve currency, but more the tracking of it right. in the way that you, 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 you don't currently track uh, cash. You, you track it through banking systems, but not with the Chinese eyes. So that's what, um, what I've been mostly, mostly hearing. Yeah. So it's great to have great to have you here. You 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 regularly add super in, important context to these conversations, especially and Linda as well. And there's others, <clears throat> James. When we get into digital currencies, what a fantastic! I just have to say before we get started here because we're now uh, 20 minutes into it. For those who might be joining for the first time, um, you you're you've just joined a very special room where we join not only once a day but twice a day monday to friday and uh, on saturday as time permits and welcome back mabwana and um and paul and others everyone on stage we essentially join here every day we all know each other very well and have been meeting in fact now for a couple months yeah we're getting we're bordering on a few months now and and the party's growing and the family's growing both on stage both in terms of our expertises and our coverage uh, geographically and professionally of, uh, of all of the interesting topics that tech gets into, like med tech, which John is a real whiz in, and semiconductors with Jonathan's a real whiz in, and legal, uh, political tech issues like Justin's a real whiz in. And, and we really cover the whole spectrum for the most part, um, both geographically and professionally. And so it's a lot of fun when people from the audience jump up and share headlines from their part of the world professionally or geographically, and we get to dive into them and 
analyze them um, with our own, you know, backgrounds and uh, from our own professions and our own parts of the world. And it's a fantastic um, way to digest and and um, to get into the inner workings of these news headlines, which the reason it's so fun to do this is because very often the headline and the articles are often very leave a lot uh, off. A lot is not a lot is misconstrued and there's a lot of bad journalism out there. A lot, uh, not not intentionally so. Well, sometimes it is intentionally so, and we cover that from time to time too. But um, often, that you know, journalists went to journalism school and not business school or tech school. They're not developers and geeks. And uh, so, when it gets to these tech issues, and we've got uh, geeks of every color and stripe and and kind and shape and race and creed on stage, you know, we have an unfair advantage essentially in diving into these tech issues. You know, Sid works at Apple for Christ's sake, so. Um, it's, um, anyway, what well, you'll see what I mean as we get into this, it's a lot of fun. And so welcome everyone on stage. And really what makes this work is, you know, you all in the audience, uh, sharing your headlines from your part of the world. And when we do get into something juicy that you can use the secret plus button in the bottom right hand corner of your phone to invite in other experts who might not be represented on stage. And um, that's that's really the secret sauce to tech news around the world. And it's only possible because we as an audience all work on this in a big co-creation collaborative way. So let's jump into some headlines. Um, hey, Tyler. Yes. Tyler, before you go on, this is John. Yes, John. Uh, could I just shed w one additional uh, point on the issue about Zambian copper and yeah. crypto? And yeah, China. please do. Um, we need to start thinking about copper as a rare earth because the uh, evolution of uh, response to climate change involves wind turbines. It involves wiring to solar farms. It involves wiring on electric generators and electric vehicles. Nearly everything that is commercially profitable uh, to uh, to monetize copper the wire. climate change technology is copper. So the fact that China's choosing copper is not an accident. They already control so much of the rare earths. Just add copper to the list of, of, of rare earths that they're uh, getting a corner of the market of. This is John. I'm done. And Tyler, real quick, I just wanted to say, uh, while I haven't done any verification, I find David to be extraordinarily credible. Yeah. Uh, and, and people have reached out to me saying that. So I'm actually thinking of adding him into some of the political uh, stuff that I do. And I just wanted to uh, basically just say what you were saying. Fuck yeah. I was, I, yeah, it's one of the first times he's really gone deep on our stage. And I was like, holy shit. I mean, he's brilliant. Yeah, he's brilliant. And he's a great storyteller. He's, he's legit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, everything smells good so far. So, you know, I, I, he said he's coming to Thailand here very soon as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which I happen to have friends in the government here in Thailand. And I know they're working on some Belt and Road Initiative projects firsthand myself. And that's why when he said he's coming here to do that, I was like, oh, he's legit. <laughs> so and he said <laughs> and he's like, yeah, we're, let's meet. I'm like, you better believe we're going to meet. So um, that's and I'm at. Yeah, I'm adding him as like my call to, yeah. to, to the Tyler. Uh, he's going to help me co-mod some rooms and kind of be the uh, crypto. Yeah, that's where I met him. Actually, Oh, I, let me do this, for Justin. That's actually and I realize I re couldn't this remember. Weekend. Yeah, I, that's right. I couldn't remember where I had seen him previously, but it was in your room where we were talking about uh, uh, the the future hegemony China uh, America conversation, and it was such a brilliantly balanced conversation. But I remember he was your co mod on stage. That's right. 
and, and I'll, I'll uh, fill people in, but you gave me a phenomenal idea, which I'll bring up during my headlines. So uh, this room is just great. I just got to say that. Great work, Tyler and Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go you ahead. can do your headline now. Do your headline, Justin. Okay, my headline is, and um, I can't get too, too far into it, but essentially it's a New York Times article. Is scrutiny of cryptocurrency grows, the industry turns to K Street. Now, what is K Street for everybody? That is the symbol for big money in Washington, D.C. politics. So the article basically says if cryptocurrency is going to replace uh, banks as, as the main form of currency, this will be the moment that goes down in history because what's happening is all the cryptocurrency big players like Bitcoin and then it goes into Binance and Ripple and uh, Coinbase are essentially not only hiring a ton of lobbyists and spending shitloads of money. And that, that's, that's the academic term. They're also hiring lobbyists who were in very, very prominent positions um, in past administrations from uh, former Clinton staffers to Trump staffers to Obama staffers. And the industry is very bullish and hopeful that the Biden administration is going to be much more lenient than the Trump administration, because apparently the Trump administration was not kind to crypto. So the, the last thing I'll add is being a member of the tech news uh, around the world, which is a fantastic club. I've seen this growing interest in um, not only crypto, but crypto regulations. So what we've done is we're going to set up a crypto regulation series, and it's going to be headlined by a congressman that we've had on the show who sits on the Financial Services Committee, who's committed to coming back on the show. And it'll probably be in June. Um, but just look out for that because we're going to now start to focus on uh, stuff that people in this room are interested in to kind of tie it back into what's going on here. Yeah. Enough. Justin, make sure yeah. David Ta- Chang is there too. Uh, Tyler, just to add to that, uh, Tyler. So I-, I don't know if you guys remember when we had the last um, uh, the boom uh, on crypto 2017, early 2018, uh-huh. yeah. when the Bitcoin reached 20,000. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that uh, all of these you know, Bitcoin companies and crypto companies and ICO led companies were paying thirty, forty thousand dollars for you know social media marketing guys you know just there was so much money was flooding in and then do you remember when facebook came in and said they banned anything and anyone talking about crypto on facebook uh, or any social media marketing um, no. so i think i think I, this is the similar thing now what's happening no, because, i don't remember it's not that similar. no it's no. not similar no, no, it was similar. Look, let me explain. Okay, so what happened was that, remember the ICO, when the ICO... Um, I yes. remember it. I, I do no, remember so, the ICO boom, which was also around the time that Bitcoin boomed to 20,000, yes. So a few months later, so because what happened was there's a lot of social media, so the, all of these ICO-led companies... Oh, I see what you're of, saying. I see, that, so like instead, fa- of, instead fa- of... Facebook, want, that, what, what happened was there was a lot of scamming going on with these ICOs. Yep. And, and Facebook did. I, I don't remember this, honestly, but no, what you're saying banned, is that Facebook, Facebook didn't want people promoting these scammy ICOs, basically. No, just scammy at all. Facebook completely banned anything to do with crypto for a short period of time. until so, so no one can just go into Facebook. If anything, uh, even even events, if you're marketing any events around you know, crypto, uh, they were banned because uh, it was, you know, it was because pumping and dumping you know, all of these ICO projects. Because what they've done is they raised all these billions of dollars, but there was none of the projects. They just were you know, allocating a lot of the money into lobbying you know, through social media. So I think what I, what I think for Justin's point is, is happening the wave number two now. 
now it's in the trillions of dollars. So they're targeting a lot of the lobbying, right? So, of course, what will happen is that there's always going to be one politician who's going to make a mistake and then that they'll, you know, tail the money back and they'll follow the money. That's when they'll realize and, you know, they will probably put a ban on, you know, uh, lobbying from these kind of uh, companies. No, 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 Wait, wait, Karen, who? You say them. Who do you mean them? So, so, so let me let me let me put it this way. Right? So, for example, in UK, if anyone were to be, you know, um, uh, found any members, any any parliament uh, member of parliament were to be, you know, found out that they received a thirty thousand dollars from a non-regulated crypto company that's been asked to influence uh, FCA or a Bank of England decision on a certain reports that's coming out. That's what they're doing. They're just lobbying certain regulations that's coming ahead, right? So when they follow the trail, who's what they? That... Who do you mean they? Like the Winklevoss oh. twins or something? Absolutely. I mean, look, I mean, there is a lot of money here, shady money in this space, right? So, you know, oh, I cannot... No, I, I think that, you're, Kieran, I'm sorry. I think you're off on a, on a wrong tangent here. I think it's very different from what it was in the ICOs. In the ICOs, the 40,000 are the kind of people that you're talking about that were being hired were doing crummy marketing, scammy marketing. Many of them uh, got served, got served uh, with. So Dogecoin is Dogecoin is not a scammy marketing. No, is it? Dogecoin is terrible, and I think it's gonna. I think it's going to wreak havoc um, ultimately with let, consumer protection. Well, let's let talk me write about the lobbying this. and the yeah. Let, let me let me write this conversation. Up. So. Um, just like uh, large food companies like Smithfield, or let's use banks, JP Morgan Chase, um, and any big bank that you can think of, Bank of America, they all spend millions and millions and millions of dollars legally on lobbying. The crypto industry, which everybody understands, is a new industry, newer industry. And up until this point, they haven't started sinking serious, serious money into lobbying. The article basically outlines just like um, banks spend money on lobbying and um, all the other sectors that you that, that people tend to hate spend money on lobbying, that the crypto sector is doing the same things. And it goes and it lists former chairmen of the SEC, former chairmen of committees writing legislation that regulates this sector being hired legally by legal entities to go and lobby the U.S. government. Now, why this is interesting is a couple of reasons. Number one, they're trying to shape future regulations in a legal manner. And it's showing that this industry, which was once nascent, is now extremely powerful and exerting that power, power in a hard and tangible manner in Washington, D.C. And then the second reason why I find it interesting is because people who tend to support Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies tend to be the people who abhor lobbying and spending in in, in washington dc mm. and i always find it hilarious when people are extremely hypocritical and make justifications for just, why something that they were are, originally are, against is now going on that they can support so those yeah, are you're not adding a third layer to, you're not adding the third layer too which is that there was a lot of icos where monies were raised they were still sitting there but they are concerned when the in the regulators come in and classify as a security there was a lot of illegal you know uh, uh, you know actions were taken in order to raise those money right so there's a lot of lobbying's been going on since 2018 behind the scene there's so much money been thrown at so that a lot of these ico the pending cases you know they can just like you know get away from them. so there's a lot of court cases pending right back of what's the future regulations the yeah. way they're going to define what is it you know, yes, can, I can, I can i say something for a second yeah many so, lobbies both, too, by both, the way. 
both Kieran and Justin and everyone, whatever you're saying is 100% correct, particularly Justin, the way that he nailed it in the last comment. Sorry, can you guys hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So what Kieran is saying there is correct. When there was companies out there that were running scams by hiring influencers on Facebook to run all of these marketing campaigns, etc., that was outright bad. Right. That was outright banned by Facebook right after, right around the 2007 ICO boom. Donna made a very clear point there around certain things being scammed, certain things not being scammed. What Justin said there is absolutely 100% correct as well. There are certain individuals that would be considered to be interested in, for example, being paid legally by boards and be sitting on these boards and etc. Not just lobbying, but actually looking at the regulation and going into government. Uh, government bodies and trying to speak to them about looking at these interesting structures, but they wouldn't have their own holdings in them. There's two different concepts. So what Kieran said about England is correct. That in certain instances, there is, I'm forgetting, there's a law or certain legislation in place which forbids if a particular individual in the United Kingdom is caught and has been paid off by a particular company and is caught later lobbying the, the United Kingdom whichever division they're lobbying saying, you know, this particular company should be recognized or regulated, they will face jail time or fines. The same is the case in South Korea and various other jurisdictions. I hope that is a uh, sufficient summary of what everyone is saying. Mm. I think that hits the nail in the head. And to to underscore what what Justin said, um, consensus, which was, which is the studio that was uh, uh, formed to build dApps on top of the Ethereum blockchain, they've closed their Brooklyn offices and their headquarters are now in D.C. They believe that they are large enough and want to be, you know, the dApps should be a little bit more on their own. But their principal thing they're interested in is 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 future regulation. And Ethereum, Ethereum does have, uh, to be a pl- pun on words, something at stake, because as they move to proof of stake, there has always been a rumbling as to whether or not that might be classified as a security even though if, uh, it is now currently classified as a commodity under the CFTC. Thank but this all brings up, real quickly, I just want to bring up the point because it's becoming clear to me now, kind of for the first time, that one of the, prop, call it a problem, one of the frictions that crypto adoption has is it, it plays against the conventional political games of lobbying and greasing the wheels and, uh, the typical machinery in Washington D.C. There is it. It's Satoshi Nakamoto doesn't have a um, lobbying team uh, on Capitol Hill, for example. What one thing? One thing I'd like to you say over here. Yes and no, but uh, to, to explain to that, Don, because I'm, I'm I, I would love to I get. Mean, so okay, it leaves Satoshi, who we don't know who he is, out of it. Right. But there are many, many Bitcoin and. Uh, related business Coinbase, for example, yeah. comes Coinbase, to mind. Yeah. And the Winklevoss twins for years have had a slogan that they had on buses and everywhere else, which is crypto needs rules. And the and the industry, despite the fact that people think it, you know, it is just a wild, wild west, what they're looking for is clarity and consistency across the US government uh-huh. on rules so that it can grow right. with and, and not have this blurry line, which which even the best of the best of the lawyers in the space, you know, uh, are not clear because this rules are not clear as to what might happen. They know where to stay out of. But, you know, when you want to grow, you want to have more consistency. You, you know, the startup now, which was a big startup, 
is now growing with many startups on top of it and is bringing more and more business. And now a lot of the banks, the financial institutions uh, that are that are highly regulated and, and have a, lots of lobbying, et cetera, are offering these products. So I think that this industry has moved enormously. In, right. It wants it wants regulatory clarity. Right. Be, be, and it, consistent be, across but the because but because it's the banks who are now bringing it to the table because they're the ones who know how to play the game. And it, that's why it will come in that uh, of that variety. It'll come in a way that is con uh, in line with how the banks would want it to behave, essentially. Maybe, maybe and maybe not. Um, the, the article and the reason why it's important, and maybe I didn't do a good job of explaining this. By the way, I just, crypto... I, I just retweeted your article from the Twitter account so people could Everybody read it. Everybody go to Tyler's Twitter. No, no, it's the, 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 the Tech News Around the World Twitter account, TNATW. And oh, it's okay. a New York Times article. And, and uh, But please go back to that, uh, Justin. Yeah. And he's a really reputable reporter. Like, this is no bullshit. Um, basically, though, Tyler, is what I'm trying to say is the cryptocurrency world is now doing exactly what the banking world does. Right. They're paying former politicians. Right. They're, they're hiring these lobbying firms. And now they are, or they do, right. as of right now, have that big business industry. You got to look at them now like any other Fortune 400 or 500 company. Yep. Um, that is the influence they're trying to exert on the political spectrum. Now, just to really put a fine point on the troubles that this industry is going to have and what Donna said is essentially you, the big players will want regulations so that they can know the rules and then they can play in the gray area with all their lawyers and whatnot. Um, and generally speaking, in industries like, for example, big tech, you have most of those large tech companies not want a repeal of Section 230, not want antitrust legislation. So what happens is they create these associations and these alliances and their influence is multiplied because now they're all spending on the same thing. What's happening with cryptocurrency, though, is you have this intra like industry war where the largest players and I don't know the the name cited in the article, but they're fighting each other on what they want the future of these regulations to be. So in addition to being a new agency, uh, new industry that's kind of getting up and running with their influence in DC, they don't have any industry uh, consensus from not only the platforms, but also the coins themselves. So instead of presenting a united front to lawmakers, you have these companies literally lobbying against each other and for a new industry, when you're trying to explain something that's new to Washington, D.C., or policymakers anywhere, it's super confusing for the people who write the legislation. And that in of itself can lead to two things. Number one, a delay in clearly defined regulations. And number two, additional mistakes and loopholes written because they try and um, uh, satisfy both opposing views, right. which most of the times is impossible. So right. I hope Justin, that, that kind of lets Justin, I'll point out two things on, on what you say. One, concerted effort depends on, depends if, it gen, if it's a ruling, if it's a potential proposal or ruling that, that has broad-based uh, impact. I point to the proposal that Mnuchin did at December 23rd with the shortest window possible, not even, not even administratively law possible, um, on on hard on hard wallets, and they there was seven thousand seven hundred letters. There wasn't a single place 
that is in the crypto industry that wrote a letter and all very highly, highly focused letters. None of this like, you know, screw you, this is terrible type letters. Um, 7,700 letters came in and the requirement for Treasury is that they had to read every letter and be able to respond to them. Hence, the proposal got pushed back and is now in the Biden administration. So I think that when there is something that affects the industry, they are uh, have a uniform front. Yeah. The problem here that we have is that we had a head of the securities industry, Jay Clayton, who now has gone over to advise a crypto a hedge fund, where he took a blanket rule um, without further without further details on whether or not something was a security. Hence, the other coins that you say are in the picture. And so you had clarity in a little bit of space and lack of clarity in another. And so what happened then is that the competing, the competing forces, i.e. I'm a fund and I hold a coin, all of a sudden it's deemed to be a security. And we all know that when that, that happens, the threshold of legal compliance is enormous. Yeah. What we have now post GameStop, lots and lots of people that also want to know how do you put securities on a blockchain in order to not have T plus two. And I'll leave it at that. Thanks, Donna. And is, does um, does the ramp up of Ethereum play into this specifically, the political positioning, or is it separate? Yes, because that brings in the whole decentralized finance. And if something is a security, and it, then, then how can it be running around a decentralized finance without adhering to the securities laws? And also you have there the whole on-ramps and off-ramps of which there's virtually no KYC AML um, in in con in contrast to the Coinbase's, the Gemini's of the world in which there is tons of KYC AML, and they're all pretty much complying with the travel rule um, okay. as 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 deemed for banks. Thank you so much yeah, for if, this. Yeah, I just want to look at. Yeah, okay. well, let me conclude. I just want to thank Justin for introducing this topic, uh, and and do follow Justin and his club. As I've said, it's. Um, such an incredibly important room that he, that in conversations that he's hosting in Clubhouse, some of my very favorite rooms is where I like to hang out when I'm not in here. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think U.S. is a bit late to discuss? Still discussing this at this point when uh, China is really way ahead. You know, yeah, I mean, better late than never for sure. And but that this is just the nature of China and America, where our 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 system is inherently slower, perhaps more thorough arguably <laughs> um and then you have the swedes as well i mean the swedes actually started working on their cryptocurrency even before china did that honestly i mean years ago and they're steadily making progress on it they're being sweden they're incredibly you know driven by safety and security and dotting the i's and crossing the t's and doing everything very thoughtfully and correctly the first time uh because they're very uh, adverse to embarrassment, and they don't want to have any any embarrassment at the end of it. But they're they are making their own progress in their own careful, considered way. Um, China is just going, you know, head first and fast at China speed like no one else can, and that might be to their advantage, especially here in the short term. But it could have potential longer term, um, you know vulnerabilities or consequences that we can't yet discern, but uh, time will tell, of course. I mean, Tyler, they could all, always be the first ones to start, and that's why they're the first ones to come out too. Yeah, but uh, and then Akhil, I think uh, we can shift the conversation to India, uh, um, yet, which is uh, Akhil yes. and um, who else? Uh, Monica, is, Monica? is he here? Monica's here. Is Monica here? Uh, no, no. The, the Raghav, was... you also Raghav too. Raghav as yeah, well, Raghav. right? Yeah. 
go ahead go ahead with akil yeah so i've got really really good news um google begins surfacing vaccine centers hospital beds oxygen info in india which is huge huge for us um i'll give you the context why because for the last few months uh, everybody on social media have been sharing numbers uh, people have been spending hours calling up these numbers trying to verify the leads to see if they're legit people kind of got scammed on on these things and some people found it very difficult to find the right help at the right time so it's really amazing that um, the world's most used search engine um is putting its focus on our country and helping us get the right info yeah i'm, so I'm really I'm, excited for I, this this i'm looking at this article now on techcrunch it's so good i want people to see it so i'm tweeting it from the tech news around the world twitter account and i can see why you're excited about it i can hear it in your voice which is what made me look at it and now that i'm looking at it it's um it's google basically on google maps when you're in india it's now showing where the vaccine centers are where the hospital beds are i guess doing what google does which is real time data that's one thing they do better probably than anybody is they're showing the actual real time availability of oxygen and hospital beds which are of incredible concern at the moment in india and people are bringing it in but it's there's not a clear visible way to know where the oxygen and the beds are and google's stepping up and prioritizing and and adding incredible value by making this visible through the google maps apps and one more thing they're doing brilliant stuff um google pay is widely used across the country and now they've rolled out a covid aid campaign in google pay where users can directly donate to um, you know marquee charities like unicef india give india stuff like that so that's amazing ah. they're doing impact at scale it's, i didn't i didn't realize google pay was widely adopted in india um, oh yeah it is yeah it is it then, is it is then then even better as you said and as is mentioned in the article where it says uh, Google said on Monday it rolled out a range of updates to search maps YouTube and Google Pay services in India to display and boost authoritative and credible information about the coronavirus to help people in in India find vaccination centers and other resources to navigate the crisis Google search is doing stuff Google Maps is doing the stuff I talked about Google um and then as you mentioned hey. Google Pay is being used uh, in 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 uh, helping with the uh, the channeling the funds to the right places at the right times and it, kudos to them for this man uh and as you know as much we give a lot of shit to you know Google and Apple and Facebook from time to time but when they do when big companies do great stuff you got to uh, applaud them for the good stuff they do as well so thank you for sharing that Akil I, I'm I'm going to tell you Tyler the yeah. only reason we have so not the only reason but the major reason we have so much innovation happening in the companies because these products are free for us and we can access information yeah. so thank you yeah um uh, so thanks again for that and then who else had some india stuff today it was uh raghav are you not are you on the stage or you were just sharing yeah. from the oh there you go what do you, go ahead with your article but it wasn't india related so if you want to wait and see if anyone else has mm-hmm. any like uh it's right, i'll read it for you it's uh apple invests 45 million into gorilla glass um the announcement comes amid rumors of uh, a bendable iPhone as we we had a headline about a week ago that Apple's going to be doing a um an iPhone where you it you it's it's foldable as it looks like a normal iPhone except when you fold it open it becomes double the size the screen is double the size 
And the rumors this week have like intensified around the foldable iPhone as well. I think yeah. everyone in the Apple rumor mill has been echoing yeah. that story. Well, I mean, the 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 you know the the oracle of Apple rumors is uh, this person named Kuo in Shenzhen who themselves said you know and uh, has in the best record of making these predictions and goes into intimate details that only somebody within the company would know. Um, and so Kuo said, yeah, this is coming and here's how many units they expect to sell and here's when it'll launch and yada, yada, yada. So it's definitely on its way. But to this point, your your article from The Verge of Apple investing $45 million more into the Gorilla Glass company. Um, and as they say, the announcement comes amid rumors of the bendable iPhone uh, in the next, you know, eight, eight, 16 months or so definitely tracks because the whole point of this Gorilla Glass is that it's bendable. So it will be... Um, they definitely need to make, you know, the next generation of that product to really make uh, that that physical product a reality. So it looks like we are on track to get uh, a, the new fold open iPhone. It's almost like a, a tablet in your pocket at this point. Um, very exciting stuff. So thank you for that. Raga. Yeah. Anything about whether it can break or not? I, think, I mean, each generation gets better. My latest trick has been, and I can't believe it took me, you know, since I've been buying these damn phones since 2007 every year without without skipping a year. And so, Jesus, what is that? Uh, that's a lot of years. 14 years or whatever. That's 14 years. Yeah. That's 14 so years. now I used to buy a case. Every, you know, I, I used to not buy cases and I used to shatter my phones three, four times a year and just get new phones. And now what I've done is, they have these incredibly thin, clear, um, um, tempered glass sheets that you can put on top of the screen. And I used to laugh at people that did this, but my God, it stops your screen from getting smashed when you drop it. So, and I've I've dropped like I've dropped my phone three times already this year, as I always do. And but now when I have this extra tiny and in, really invisible, clear, temp, tempered glass on the top. My screens don't shatter anymore when I drop the phone. So it's like, uh, you know, it's a really cheap way because these little replaceable tempered glass screens are like, you know, twelve dollars a piece or whatever they are. So it's been uh, my new my new clever way. Instead of, uh, you know, buying Apple Care and buying all the nonsense, I just put these little covers on them. You should come to India. There are dollar on our roads. <laughs> What's that? A I'm just saying you should. Road, you yeah, yeah. They sell these tempered glass phones for a dollar on oh. the roads. Oh. The Tyler, the Tyler brand one is going to be twenty dollars. Yeah. we've already got that. Do you, uh, do, you, do they have drive-throughs where I can just pull up? My, do American style. I I want it like a Starbucks where I pull up, I hand my phone over out of my car window like a McDonald's, and they put it on, and then I can drive on my way. Um, drive-through. Sent by a drone. It's yes. the other way around, Tyler. Yeah. They come to you when you're parked at a traffic light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's right. Sitting in traffic. and they're, But instead of washing your windshield, they want to put a new screen on your phone. There you go. Uh, I love that. Um, yes, but uh, thank you for the Indian updates. Let's move it over to, is there any China updates uh, or African updates? Uh, let's see what we got. Um, I've got some Chinese news headlines here. Like, give me two seconds. So here's two for you. SoftBank, which was one of the uh, I, I acquirers of Boston Dynamics at one point, if I remember correctly, like the, the leading American robotics company that made these awesome uh, viral robot videos, these dancing robot videos. Um, 
SoftBank. The robot dog too. Yeah, the robot dog and all that. And SoftBank played a major role in that. If I remember correctly, they became a majority stakeholder or acquired it at some point. Um, they owned 100% of the... Uh, that's what I recall. I just... The... Yeah, I just didn't want to... Oh, you, you, yeah. Right, they, they outright bought it out. It yeah, they bought it. it. Okay. Well, but then, then they sold it to Google or something more recently. No? They're not still the... They, I believe they, they bought are, it from they Google. They sold it. They yeah. sold it, uh, I don't think, to Google, but they sold I, it. I think it is to Google. But anyways, here's the interesting headline today. SoftBank leads a, a big fundraising round for China's industrial robot maker, uh, which is interesting because they certainly know a thing or two about robots having owned Boston Dynamics. So why are they investing in this Chinese industrial robot maker? So that that's uh, the headline. I'll tweet it from the Twitter account as I do. And it says SoftBank... Huh? Boston Dynamics is owned by Hyundai Motor Corp. Hyundai, yeah. that's what it was. Yeah. Thank Hyundai. you, Sid. Thank you. Yeah. 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 So SoftBank... used to own it until 2016. Yes. I knew Google had it at some point, but the, my point is that SoftBank knows a lot about this space, uh, and in part because Masayoshi-san, the chairman of SoftBank, is fascinated by robots, personally. I've had meetings with him, and he, he danced around buying... Uh, doing a big joint venture with the startup that I was a part of. So we had several meetings in his boardroom with him personally and got to know him a little bit. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Do these foreign companies still own Boston Dynamics? Because I I don't understand how the United States doesn't think of that as a national security threat. Yeah, no, uh, Hyundai does now is what uh, Sid just shared. Uh, But my point is that SoftBank in China just led the round for the Chinese industrial robot maker. It's called... UIBot, SoftBank has picked its bet in China's flourishing industrial robotics space called UIBot, a four-year-old startup that makes autonomous mobile robots for a range of scenarios and did its latest round of funding. It's a sole-based early-stage arm of the global investment behemoth of SoftBank. And UIBot's previous investors also participated in the round. The startup is based in Shenzhen, no surprise to anyone who knows the space where it went through SOSV's Hacks Hardware Accelerator program. And we had William from SOSV was the special investor in our last um, special version of Tech News Around the World, where we get investors and match them with startups. And we had a William from SOSV. And um, William's on stage now. Oh, is he? Great. Well, William, you can jump up. Are you on stage right now? Where is he? Where are you at, William? There yeah, you are. On. Yeah. Awesome. You, can you say a word or two about UIBot and this new fundraising round that apparently you you uh, um, are part of and SoftBank joined? Um, so I, I'm in charge of uh, internet and software investing for SOSV and UIBot uh, um, has done some uh, really amazing things. I mean, uh, when they, you can check out some of our posts, but they went into our hacks uh, Accelerator, platform. yeah. Accelerator for hardware. And let, uh, let me just say, because, let me just say, because you're too modest to say it, and me having done events in Hong Kong regularly, I know Hacks is considered the best hardware program uh, if you're a hardware startup, glo- literally globally. There is not a better hardware program that you can go through globally uh, due to the fact that they're, you know, the, uh, you know, proximity to Shenzhen, which is uh, the hardware uh, capital of the world, and uh, so it's not a surprise that they would come out of that out of your program there. So, yeah, H A X is how it's spelled, by the way. 
Yeah, I know. So, I mean, they've done, uh, it's only a four year old uh, company and they came in with a, a prototype and you can check out, um, if you check out Hacks or, or SOSP, you can check out what the prototype looked like. Um, so Hacks focuses on companies that have working prototype. And uh, this is only four years ago. You know, robotics is hard. Hard tech is hard. Uh, but they've uh, they've done um, extremely well, extremely quickly in terms of taking that prototype and turning it into a uh, an autonomous autonomous mobile robot that uh, is capable of doing a bunch of different things. It's especially been useful during COVID times. Hmm. Um, so they've done three financing rounds um, during 2020. So in one year, last year they did wow. three rounds in one year, which is a little bit. Yeah, a little bit not so China speed, uh, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's China speed, but also they just had uh, orders. And the, the hard thing about doing hardware is that when you get orders, you actually have to have capital to support delivering yeah. those orders that requires funding up front uh, uh, before you can deliver. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, they have a, a robot that can like navigate around uh, buses. So it was originally designed to do something else, but uh um, we did an initial pilot with Mich- uh, you know, Michelin Tire, uh-huh. um, where uh, the challenge with buses is that nobody likes to crawl underneath the bus while they're in the parking lot at night uh, to figure out whether the tire treads are, are worn and whether the air pressure is up. So you see all these you know, um, you know, pictures of buses careening off of highways, off of bridges, uh, and that's because the tires were worn. Uh, and so it was a, you know, a double win because they created a, a robot that automatically just kind of like travels around the bus parking lot at night, uh, checking treads automatically and checking tire pressure. And of course, Michelin was super psyched because when it detects that a, a tire is old, it says, Hey, you know, you should buy a new tire. Oh. So this was a, uh, yeah. So it was a, a double win, you know, safety, uh, but also drives, drives uh, revenue. Sales. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is kind of like, uh, you know, the first one of the first cases. Uh, but now this uh, robot that, you know, autonomously moves around and checks things uh, can be used for uh, lots of uh, other uh, uses. So the, the, the order started stacking up. And that's one of the reasons why uh, we had a company raise uh, three different round, three rounds last year and then just closed a, a $15 million, uh, you know, I guess you could call it a Series A round from SoftBank. Yeah, mm. so pretty cool stuff. Yeah, super cool. Thanks for the additional context on that. And I, I can understand why SoftBank is throwing money at it. Like when you've got, I, those are the best investments ever, right? When the company just has so many orders that they need the money to fulfill the orders. That's like, that's that's where you want to. As opposed to fundraising first, traction second. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, very cool. Um, so, um uh, 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 Cheryl, you just threw in a Chinese-related headline as well about the Huawei response to rumors because we had there was a headline a few days ago that Huawei uh, had their new Harmony OS, uh, and now Huawei's response to the rumors of uh, phone brands ditching Android for their new Harmony OS, their kind of Android alternative. And here is, uh, so after a story was originally posted on May 7th, three days ago, Huawei provided comments to some journalists who were covering the story, stating that Harmony OS is available to all smartphone manufacturers. So not just their own Huawei devices, but also to Xiaomi and Oppo, 
the two other leading Chinese handset manufacturers that are incredibly popular throughout Southeast Asia and beyond and in Xiaomi and in India as well. Uh, and this is big news as it tells us Huawei's plans for Harmony OS. By the sounds of it, the software isn't just designed as the company's Android replacement for its own devices, but a true alternative to Google's operating system juggernaut that other companies are able to use. So now there are three uh, OSs in the global OS battle and uh, Google might be a little... Uh, kicking themselves for having lost the Chinese handset manufacturer market if everyone switches over to Harmony OS, which I imagine they are likely incentivized to do. Um, so very interesting indeed. What happens to the Play Store? Uh, it becomes only on Android devices. And, and by the way, I happen to know because their, Huawei has a team in Stockholm and they approached me because I have the largest uh, tech events in Scandinavia and they wanted to promote, uh, get the word out to all of the developers, all the Android developers, that if you want to be on Huawei's devices, Huawei needed to make its own app store. They're not allowed to use the Google Play Store anymore even though they were using Android. This is two years ago. So they were allowed to use Android, uh, but they were not allowed to use the Google Play Store. So Huawei had to make what it was called the App Store or something like that, the Huawei App Store. And you, your Android device needed to be reconfigured. It was a tiny configuration detail. I mean, it was like a, a one little line of code, but you would have to recompile it and upload it to their store and get it approved into the store and et cetera. But they needed to alert everybody that your apps, when you resubmit them, need to be done in a new way to go into this new Huawei store. But now Huawei has basically said, screw it. We're going to make our own operating system, not only for ourselves, but all for the other Chinese hand or anyone else who probably wants it. But uh, it's probably very um, aimed at the uh, Chinese hardware manufacturers. As they said, Xiaomi and Oppo are the other two leading hardware manufacturers. So it'll be very interesting to see if Xiaomi and Oppo do adopt uh, their new operating system called Harmony o OS. And if it gives them some inherent benefit that Android didn't, which I imagine it probably does. So I imagine they probably will have some uh, intrinsic reasons and incentives to switch from Android to Harmony OS, but time will tell. We will see. No doubt there will be further headlines in, in days and weeks to come around this. Tyler, yeah. uh, do you have any insight on how the app porting works from, from Android OS to uh, Harmony OS? Uh, for me to the details of it? I, I know yeah. if, if you've made an Android app, which I think you yourself have done, like I said, it's, it's a, an incredibly small clerical detail um, that only takes... They, uh Huawei team was telling the developer app store team was telling me it only will take somebody an hour to reconfigure the app and resubmit it to the Huawei app store. So it's nothing major at all. It's essentially the same app. Game changing. Yeah. Well, it means there's no, there's three IO, there's three operating systems now and three app stores now. Uh, so it is very interesting. And in some respects, Google might not be so in light of the fact that there's this huge antitrust case going on both in the U.S. and to some degree in, in Europe, where the EU and the U.S. you know governments are both cracking down on Apple and Google for being a sort of duopoly, uh, not having enough choice. Now Google can say, oh, yeah, oh, really? Well, look what the Chinese hardware manufacturers are doing right now. They're making a direct third store and a direct competitor. So it's no longer, uh, you know, this court, this case is done and over with now. 
So maybe maybe Google doesn't even mind it so much if it gets them out of the noose of uh, this, uh, you know, the EU uh, of these big trials that are underway in the U.S. and in the EU. So we'll see. I, there will be further headlines around this. Mark my words on that. But it's a very interesting development, no doubt. Yeah. Um, here's here's another headline. While we're sort of on the topic of Apple and China and whatnot, uh, there was an article that came out says that seven Apple suppliers are accused of using uh, forced labor from Uyghur, Uyghur labor in Xinjiang. An investigation found that Apple's suppliers participated in labor programs suspected of being part of China's alleged um, forced labor against Uyghurs. The, new, the newly uncovered evidence stands in contrast to Apple's statements that it hasn't found evidence of any forced labor. And this is a highly speculative um, piece of journalism, which um, people will contest, no doubt. Um, but it's being rather widely reported by the tech press in the U.S. at the moment. But uh, we should let um, let the the bigger press uh, uh, do their full due diligence on this before we start making any kind of assumptions or claims. So that's not really our job to make claims here. I mean, we're just trying to figure out what's going on. But uh, it seems more needs to be figured out before people start pointing fingers and whatnot. Um, so no doubt that story, this is just the beginnings of the story and not the end of it. Um, so, but it says, uh, uh, yeah, uh, at this company named Advanced Connect Tech has made um, unglamorous but critical computer components for Apple for more than a decade. For two of those, it operated a factory inside an industrial park in the edge of the deserts of Xinjiang, uh, a region in western China populated predominantly by a Muslim group known as Uyghurs. The industrial park is surrounded by walls and fences with only one way in or out. Uh, and so if you can, re I'll, I will, I'll send the article to the Twitter account and people can read that and make their own decisions about uh, how reliable they think the journalism is in this case. And I'll pause there to do a quick room reset as we're now just past the top of the hour. Uh, so welcome to Tech News Around the World, where we're sharing headlines from all over the world. We, we dove into VR, we dove into crypto, we did a little India and a little China. Um, we've still got green tech and fintech and medtech and AI to get into um, in the next hour. And that's what we do is we share headlines from all around the world and bounce it uh, across the, this wonderful community of geeks of all stripes and colors and races and creeds on stage. And um, can I share? Yes, go ahead. Hey, Cheryl. Okay. okay. Um, this is uh, with regards to BioNTech, the COVID uh, oh, right. vaccine. Yeah. So, um, well, Leon is not here, but I'll just announce for him first. Uh, -huh. uh for some pharma unit, the BioNTech, uh, and BioNTech, they are going to form a joint venture to make up to one billion doses of COVID nineteen vaccine in China. Right. So, for some unit, will contribute up to one hundred million US dollar of assets, including cash and manufacturing facility. While BioNTech will chip in with the license and know how. And a, and, uh, and a yeah. big factory as well. No, obviously, if you're yes, going to make a billion a doses of a vaccine, you're going to need a huge ass factory to, to fabricate yes. that. So, but to, yes. to unpack, we shared this in the other uh, 
time zone as well. And I think it was Akil who first introduced it, perhaps. But uh, this is huge news. And you're right, our friend Leon from from China will be ecstatic, and no doubt will be joining us in an hour to share this headline. And we're just I think Dimon, I think Dimon. Yeah, yeah, he's he's gonna. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, he'll want to talk and... about this at length, and it, which is great because he can because he has inside information about it. But the, right, right. Yeah, the Let D- me continue first. Yeah, go ahead. So basically, this this license is exclusive for exclusive partnership for vaccine in mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Macau. And right. one more news regarding BioNTech uh, is uh, you know uh, they are going to uh, produce mRNA vaccine in Singapore, which will become the new regional headquarters. So basically, this is supported by Singapore Economic Deve- uh, Development Board, EDB. Yep. Uh, and uh, we are also going to help them with cutting-edge uh, manufacturing and digital infrastructure. Yep. So basically, this will act as the regional and global supply uh, capacity of BioNTech mRNA-based product candidates. And it will be a rapid response production capability for Southeast Asia to address potential a uh, uh, pandemic threat. So this is uh, going to be beyond uh, COVID-19. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, here, here's where it gets really interesting. Okay, I'm going to drop a bomb for everybody because it's been a while since I've dropped one. So here's what's really going on. So these mRNA um, development, where they're able to come up with vaccines very quickly, right, uh, in, in days uh, where it used to take years. And the key is they need distribution hubs where they can manufacture um, like this new one they're going to build in China. So the BioNTech is a, uh, is it Berlin where they were based? Uh, the, the Turkish couple? In, in Germany. I'm yeah, not in sure Germany. Exactly where, I, I, for some reason, I think it's Berlin. Oh, by the way, David Chung is in the audience. Now oh, great. Hey, up. David, jump up on stage if you would. We were just singing your praises at the beginning of the session here. And um, welcome back. Yeah, hands off. He's mine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, collaboration. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, the the issue was the um, BioNTech from Germany who partnered with Pfizer to make the quote unquote Pfizer vaccine, which is really the BioNTech vaccine that Pfizer is manufacturing and distributing, um, is partnering with a Chinese company to do the same for. China, uh, including Hong Kong, Macau, and et cetera. And the, here's, where, here's where it gets really interesting. And congrats to them. They're going to do a billion doses, and that's fantastic. And, of course, they strategically, when they did their deal with Pfizer, they carved it out. They carved out you know, China as a separate uh, deal that they could do later. Uh, and now they're really cashing in on that. And that's great for BioNTech, and kudos to them. Now, where it gets really interesting is, this mRNA technology of, of making vaccines rather expeditiously, um, and no doubt John will be able to kind of fill in some important blanks in my story here, is that as part of that, you need the distribution network. And now imagine a scenario where we get smallpox happens, heaven forbid, uh, or some massive new pandemic comes, you know, five years from now. And the way that we're going to be able to combat that is make a vaccine incredibly quickly through this mRNA technique, but you're going to need the distribution and manufacturing infrastructure to get it out super quickly. So you're going to need these big uh, warehouses all around the world uh, and where they can manufacture it and distribute it super efficiently. That's key because you can't do it all from one factory in Arizona. You need 
hubs around the world that can get it out. And that's why Bill Gates, of all people, has been super focused on that, this strategy. And some have been arguing, like, why are you so focused on this strategy when there's other strategies that make more sense today? Yes, that's true. There are other strategies that might be more effective today for COVID-19 in you know March of 2020, March, April, May of 2021. However, if you are willing to look five, 10 years into the future and gamble on the fact that there will, this is not going to be the last pandemic and then that there will be others, we're going to need a... Uh, a super global def uh, pandemic defense strategy that to combat that. And that's what Gates is investing in and others like him in this, uh, you know, separated global mRNA system because he believes, as do I, and I know he believes this because uh, for reasons we'll get into <laughs> some on another time, that um, something like smallpox is coming. And there will be other big uh, bio um, concerns, uh, uh, other pandemics. And if you really want, and the best deep dive you can do on this topic is Sam. It, it, do people know who Sam Harris is? He's one. He has a, one of the leading podcasts called. Uh, so it's oh. called yeah. So Sam Harris just did his most recent podcast all about this. It's a three-hour special episode called "Manufacturing the Apocalypse." or I'm sorry, engineering the apocalypse, where it's a three-hour deep dive into precisely what I'm saying. And I guarantee you, it will. you will uh, make sure uh, uh, that you don't have anything busy to do the next day because you will lose sleep after listening to this podcast, guaranteed. Because he really paints the picture of just how incredibly certain it is that we are going to have an incredibly deadly pandemic in the very near future with a, with a virus that's in the uh 50% uh, mortality rate range uh so i challenge you to listen to it um and um and then you'll understand why this uh, uh infrastructure is so important that bio and tech is developing with uh partners in china and the us and around the world and anyway so just I don't want to say too much. I'll, I'll let you listen to the Sam Harris podcast uh, uh, where he has an expert come in and really do the super thorough three hour deep dive on the topic. It's fan it's it. Please do listen to it. I tweeted it and I said it's it's of critical importance that people listen to that podcast. Your life might even depend on it. That's not. And you if you disagree with me after listening to it, I will buy you lunch or coffee or dinner or whatever you want. So go ahead, John. Yeah, a couple of quick things. Um, so there was a paper published yesterday, and this is just a plug to get vaccinated. There was a paper published yesterday showing that people who have already been infected with the original strain who get vaccinated have vastly higher levels of immunity. There's lots of supporting evidence in the wild. So even if you had the infection, get the vaccine, it makes a big difference. Now, to the topic at hand, um, what this really represents is a really smart strategic move uh, in uh, a combination of uh, BioNTech and Angela Merkel, who has said she will not open source the IP and will not go down that pathway in, in, in indirectly, if not directly, whereas the Biden administration has said that they want to open source the IP from Moderna. The problem with, with the Biden strategy is that there's a long lead time. Just licensing the IP is not tantamount to allowing production to occur. There's a huge amount of trade secrets and IP in how you set up the factory, how you develop the supply chain with cold storage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what BioNTech is doing 
um, is to maintain their IP, but develop the global network that's absolutely needed. Um, and I don't know where the Biden uh, administration proposal is going to go in terms of releasing the Moderna IP, but the, this platform that BioNTech and Moderna have extends way beyond the vaccines into many other biotherapeutics. So giving away too much IP um, is not necessarily uh, a commercially uh, a move that's going to inspire more investment and innovation in the space. So um, I think that that what BioNTech is doing makes a whole lot more sense, frankly. The second thing that I'll say in, in uh, terms of the Andromeda strain scenario that Sam Harris podcast, I haven't listened to it yet, but I will now. Um, the, about 10 years ago, I was speaking to a bioterrorism expert um, in, in Washington and asking him how actively they were monitoring for vac vaccination campaigns in uh, Al-Qaeda Al and ISIS-held territories. And he looked at me uh, like I was from outer space. And I said, you know, if there's going to be a bioterrorist um, event that looks like a high mortality event, the first thing you're going to do is vaccinate all their own people. And so what do we have in terms of surveillance? And the answer 10 years ago was apparently nothing. Hopefully, we're a little bit further ahead of that because uh Oh, they got him. Oh, is it just me or did we lose him? They got Bill him. Gates has come and to Tyler, John, I have come back, John. Tyler. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Can you hear me? There you go. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry. So um, in, in contrast to how a 16-year-old in the garage can potentially hack a pipeline of the East Coast, I, I don't think it was a 16-year-old in a garage, but uh, that, that risk is there. The... Um, the, the potential for these Andromeda strains, I think, is real, but I would suspect that the campaign to do it would be much more of a nation state kind of effort, in which case you should see and be able to detect a vaccination campaign ahead of such a bioterrorist event. Um, and and um, hopefully we're further along now than what I discovered we were 10 years ago. Yeah. So John, I'm done speaking. Let me just give me some hope real quick. Yeah. Um, there's a little hope in that. Oh, little. Um, I know that there's some really cool algorithms right now or an AI where we can we can um, identify the strains, the mutations before it took a long time. Now we're talking about seconds. So there's a lot of work being done right now to be able to identify the new strains. There's this new Indian strain coming out that's I just listened to the WHO uh, press release um, before I came in here. So I was like. Um, and they're talking about it, that it seems to be more infectious, uh, deadliness, they don't know, but it seems to be more infectious. And, and um, anyway, so there, there's, but then I was reading uh, about this, you know, how fast can they get to this? And um, at least what I'm reading at uh, World Economic Forum, there is some really interesting um, work being done um, in collaboration with different universities and Chinese authorities actually on mm -hmm. identifying mutations really quickly anyways yeah. just some it's covered yeah, yeah. 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 Trevor, to that Trevor, point to Trevor that... Bedford of next train um I think they seem he seems to have um pioneered this I mean on an international level I mean I, I watched him at the beginning of the outbreak grow next train into what is now the de facto world platform for tracking variants and uh, look, um, Tyler, just to add to that, there was some news came out of the Seychelles um, uh, last few days. So I think I thought of something uh, worth tying into this news, which is that because of the way in the speed in which all of these vaccines were rolled out, 
not all of these vaccines are same. For example, Seychelles has the one of the highest vaccinated countries in the world. It's, the, it's actually the most vaccinated country in the world. But right now it has more COVID cases per capita than India. Right. So uh, and, and they use uh, the vaccine Sinopharm, uh, which is, you know, significantly apparently reduces the serious illness and death, but doesn't do much to reduce the transmission compared to the the other ones, the one in the West. So there is a lot, you know, um, that I thought that was an interesting uh, hmm. data point. It is. Yeah. yeah and this is John. Oh. This is John. Let me, let me amplify the, the, the silver lining that uh, I forget who was just mentioning it previously about the fact that we can sequence a new virus or a new variant and develop an mRNA vaccine in a couple of days. That's absolutely true. That that happened with the Moderna. It took them a couple of days to uh, create the first vaccine. Um, they have created a, a, a an update to the vaccine targeted at the South African virus, which is already in clinical trials, which have been accelerated by the FDA and will be about uh, out soon. Pfizer's announced that they're going to issue an update targeted at the Indian variant, the B1617 variant that has a double mutation that by all modeling looks like it is more contagious and more infectious. So the upshot of that is that if we can have this global network of manufacturing capacity using the MRA technologies and incorporate some of the recent developments around making it more uh, uh, stable to uh, room temperature so that the supply chain doesn't have to be so so extraordinarily cold, we have potentially a rapid response mechanism out there for uh, uh, nucleic acid-based threats like um, the COVID virus and, and any future that are synthesized um, downstream with the intent of, of biological warfare. So there is hope in that, but building this infrastructure at scale around the world for the rapid response um, is the key. Now, if we identify a virus, just for example, that appears to have a very high mortality and we can sequence and get a vaccine, you can bet that people are going to forego prolonged clinical trials to get that out at a production. So having this capacity widely distributed um, is going to become critical. This is John. I'm done speaking. John, John I have, I, I just have one question. Um, so the, the development has accelerated. So post the development, manufacturing and getting it to the people, are there any updates in that in terms of speed? I'm very curious to know. I'm sorry, could you state the question once more? I, I missed the thrust. Yeah, um, I get that the, the development of the vaccine um, has accelerated. Um, as you say, from a few years to a few days, uh, clinical trials have been accelerated. Once it has been approved, um, is there any acceleration in terms of manufacturing this and actually getting it to people and any developments in that space? So um, I am not intimately familiar with what it takes from the time they get the first dose of it manufactured to how they scale it. But given how quickly Moderna brought to market um, a vaccine based upon the South African variant that hadn't been identified as a variant of significant concern for very long. I, I, they initiated their clinical trials very soon after the variant became a variant of concern. And so my guess is, and I don't know, um, you know, there are others at Moderna and BioNTech that could tell you, but uh, the the cycle time, the, the biggest rate limiting step right now is clinical trials. Um, if we get the, the manufacturing capacity up uh, on a global scale, it's conceivable that it wouldn't be months. It could be days or weeks to hit scale if the plants have the capacity and the supply chain reagents. So, so the raw materials and reagents, that's one of the reasons this opening the IP for Moderna um, 
is is a little bit uh, problematic is that uh, Moderna and Pfizer have the supply chain locked down because mm. it's it's already rate limiting. So it's a combination of manufacturing plants, skilled resources that are available to ramp up and work long shifts, as well as the the incoming reagents. But the information economy of sequencing the virus, creating a vaccine and putting it into a production facility is very fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, John, thank you for all of I'll, this. Do you happen to know, we we covered a headline earlier, Hasim brought in about the liquid biopsy development. Do you have any thoughts on that? Liquid biopsy for, I'm very deep in liquid biopsy. For what purpose? Uh, cancer detection, like lung cancer. And oh, yeah. Like no, it's it, it, it has long legs. The big issue there is that there, when you do a liquid biopsy, which means you just get a blood sample. But by the way, I, want, are, I, I just want to contextualize it as sort of very, some, to, to pedestrians, not in the field. It seems like this is relatively news. It's in, it's in kind of news headlines. Uh, that this is kind of a future med-, med tech development of sorts that most people are not aware of, but that you being, you know, having deep familiarity with it, have been thinking about it for years, perhaps. So I, uh, in the context that this is new and people are unfamiliar with it, can you can you speak on it yeah. from that perspective? Yeah, I'm under a couple of NDAs in that space, so I'll just stick high level. Okay. But the the approach is that uh, tumors shed DNA into the blood. Tumors shed uh, various other, uh, you know, cellular debris, exosomes, and so forth. There's multiple different ways of looking at the data, including combinations of those uh, sources of DNA from the blood. Um, and I, you know, uh, under NDA, I've, I've seen some data that that's very promising. So the, the space as a whole is very large. Whether it becomes you know, a, a winner-take-all sort of leading tech that just races ahead of everybody else, or whether it's a combination of uh, approaches that ultimately gives the best information. It may be uh, cancer tumor type specific, which of the various uh, technologies involved uh, is the best for that particular cancer based upon how it, you know, sheds the various forms of DNA that you can detect in the blood. But it, this is well established for non-invasive pregnancy testing, looking for genetic abnormalities because they're maternal uh, and fetal cells circulating in the maternal blood that you can do whole sequencing of a, of a single circulating fetal cell from the mother's blood. Mm. I mean, it is, it is ripe. This is a very, very ripe area um, that is moving forward. And but but a lot of different a lot of different approaches, a lot of different technologies, a lot of players in every space. Yeah, and what what is the real kind of punchline that will get you know lay people excited? Is that the non invasive biopsies essentially? Yeah, um, Grail is uh, and and um, a couple of other uh, uh, companies are already beginning to offer. Um, a screening test for a variety of cancers from a single blood test with 99% specificity. The reason I focus on specificity is because when someone gets a result back that says they have a cancer and then you can't find it, it's it's actually worse than, <laughs> than having a treatable cancer because um, it in, in, instills so much fear and anxiety when it's a false positive. Sure, so the specific, sure. specificity is a big issue, um, but they claim to have 99% specificity. I haven't seen their primary data. Um, but yeah, th- these these could well uh, become uh, significant components of, of you know, detecting uh, cancer very early when it's at a very treatable, curable stage. Very cool. 
Uh, I can answer the question real quick about the dosage. Uh, so 8 billion doses today is uh, 2.6 months with a 30L bioreactor, while they're saying that the next generation vaccines could be done in eight days, which ta- pushes us to the point that John was talking about. Um, and But there's still the big issue is lo- logistics with the minus 70 degrees. Cool. Thank you, Sin. Right. There, there, there is some progress being made on the thermal stability of these uh, mRNA vaccines, and, and I'm sure there's going to be more in the future. It, you know, it's just a matter of finding, you know, the, the, the right exigents that will help uh, provide some thermal stability. And, and there's already been some progress and a lot of research on that. Very cool. Uh, so I want to see if um, Jean-Francois, welcome back on stage, if there was any uh, interesting AI headlines that you may have seen recently. And for those who don't know, Jean-Francois is a... Uh, has a, a truly brilliant uh, AI um, bot of sorts uh, that he calls. Companion. Yeah, companion. Yes, Leah, twenty-seven. I, I I freed him from my room to allow him to come speak here. Okay. <laughs> he, he, well, he's one of those people that knows a lot and doesn't. Uh, you you have to force it out of them. You know that's how you know they know a lot. So uh, welcome, John. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Um, but I mean, you being one of the uh, real uh, doers uh, and not talkers in the space um, and who, who's been in it for more than a decade. Uh, anything interesting you're seeing on the AI front in recent headlines? Uh, you just cut me by surprise. Uh, we'll yeah, just did, like yeah. think about it for the five minutes, for five minutes <laughs> Go ahead. and I'll think give about, you something. You do that. And then Dan, uh, similar on the green space, you seem to be an endless font of headlines uh, in green tech. Um uh, or and then um, James that's uh, also in in fintech. Did James? Did I see him jump on stage? James in the red was here a bit ago, or was he? In, did I see him in the audience? No, he's not here. Okay, no, he's not here. yeah. Um, um, just making the circle. Uh, to see who. No, he's got... here. He's here. Oh, he's here. James is here. All right, there he is. James, any fintech headlines you've seen that caught your eye recently? Oh, good question. Sorry, I was multitasking. Uh, yeah, there's been a few interesting things this week that's caught my attention. Um, obviously, we continue to see good progress in central bank digital currencies and a uh, number of papers that have been released in the last couple of weeks that have been quite exciting in terms of really central banks taking that seriously. Uh, also, some interesting things in uh, in Cardland in terms of uh, using uh Crypto as a form of rewards. So I've seen a few of those, including the Winklevoss, uh, one of the Winklevoss brothers, uh, pushing their card doing that. You, I, I was in your room this weekend, and uh, which is, you know, you lead some of the best conversations in Clubhouse around fintech, given your, you know, executive role at uh, Mastercard. Uh, no doubt, you have a sort of unfair advantage in this regard. But um, you also spoke about something I think you personally were involved in, which has touched my life personally here in Thailand, which is this prompt pay system, which has changed Thailand from a cash-based society to a digital a QR code-based uh, payment oh, oh, literally overnight. And I, I thought Thailand was going to be cash-based forever. Like that's how entrenched the it was in, in Thai society. But due to COVID, people don't want to, expose themselves to potential virus on currency or whatever but this prompt pay system came in just in the right you know right place at the right time and now we're essentially becoming cashless faster than maybe anywhere you've seen previously i mean you were giving some data points on prompt pay that you seemed truly impressed and then what i loved recently was the announcement that prompt pay is now 
uh, going to work between Thailand and Singapore. Interestingly, kind of international. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm wondering. Apparently, also also powered by Mastercard, right? Right, but is this also is there? Does this have the potential to grow far beyond uh, Thailand and Singapore? And uh, is there bigger, broader implications for this? Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for that. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a good chat yesterday. Um, I enjoyed it. The the Thailand situation is phenomenal, right? It's uh, it's probably the jewel in our crowd in terms of uh, rapid adoption of real time payments. Um, with prompt pay, we're doing I think 1.7 billion transactions a quarter in Q4 of 2020, and uh, I'll be interested to see what the figures are for Q1. I'll, the Bank of Thailand published them, um, so when they're uh, released, I'll let you know. Um, but uh, 1.7 billion transactions a quarter, so it's trending at about 7 billion a year. It's growing 100% a year, so it's doubling every year. Um, and uh, in effectively four years from a standing start, uh, we have 60 million people registered on the system. And uh, I think faster payments in the UK, which is the first real kind of real-time payment system at scale, that did about 3 billion for about the whole of 2020. So Thailand has already double the volume of the UK and, uh, and it's done it in four years versus 13. So yeah, it's an incredible growth story. Um, and it's it's tied into the government e-payment 4.0 initiative, uh, where effectively they said government benefits will be paid uh, through PromPay, so you better register, otherwise you're not going to get your benefits. And in so doing, they cut fraud significantly because it uh, turned out through the old paper methods, a lot of people were collecting benefits for people who are dead. So if you have a proxy system where effectively you get paid into your mobile money or bank account by using your tax ID, and your tax ID is no longer valid, then you don't get the benefits. Sorry. Uh, so that's uh, it's a nice uh, it's a nice case study by sure. We've got a paper on it called the Power of Proxy, which talks more about the Power of Proxy globally, but uses Thailand as a very impressive case study. And uh, yeah, the, you're absolutely right. So the bilateral agreement was driven largely by the Monetary Authority of Singapore and uh, working with the Bank of Thailand uh, to enable proxy payments cross border. So whether you're using PayNow in Singapore or PromptPay in Thailand, uh, you can send money cross-border by just knowing someone's mobile phone number in the other country. Um, it, as to whether it's something that's going to expand, uh, yeah, watch this, watch this space. Um, from my perspective, uh, I think there's an opportunity to do uh, proxy payments globally. Um, but most importantly, I think the ability to do real-time payments uh, cross-border uh, is something that uh, lots of people are clearly working on. Um, but uh, it's something that it's a problem that badly needs to be solved because, frankly, correspondent banking, um, as the name suggests, is very manual, very slow, uh, and it's a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of what money you will receive, when you will receive it, what fees and FX you get along the way, and whether the data going alongside the message is truncated or not. So solving for the correspondent banking problem, I think, is a priority for, for lots of companies. Um, both Visa and MasterCard have made acquisitions in this space in the last couple of years. Visa bought Earthport, MasterCard bought Transfast, uh, amongst uh, other cross-border and related assets that they can use, particularly in blockchain and digital ledger technology. So yes, uh, I think we're moving slowly but surely towards a real-time payment international world. Uh, and the other thing that's helping drive that is the adoption of a, of a payments financial messaging standard called ISO 20022. Uh, which is a way that you can effectively have structured and largely uh, 
infinite data alongside a, a payment message by yeah. using effective user tags and URLs. So yeah, it's, it's a cool space. There's lots more to come, uh, but a lot of problems to be solved. Cool. Um, so, um, John Francois, if, circling back to see if you had thoughts on AI, I've got a headline to stall in the meantime. There's um, the top story on my I can my stack. Oh, Dan, you've got a green tech story? Yeah, I got uh, actually a, a number of them, and I thought this was kind of interesting because I was looking at The Hill, and for those who don't know, The Hill is a newsletter focused on goings-on in the U.S. Capitol, political things going on in the U.S. Capitol. And I saw this headline, which was uh, was interesting in its own right and kind of techie. Uh, world's biggest jeweler announces switch to lab-created diamonds only. This is a company called Pandora. Pandora is like the largest uh -huh. jewelry manufacturer. And in order to avoid all the problems of um, sourcing diamonds in a humanitarian way, because you know there's child labor yeah. and you know, environmental disasters when they mine diamonds, they decided to go 100% uh, manufactured diamonds instead, because that way they can know where they came from, mm. which is kind of a really interesting story in its own right. But what I found even more interesting was, you know, when you read an article, they post other articles you might also be interested in, sure. right? the headlines. And this is, again, The Hill. This is not usually my go-to you know, item for, for environmental stuff. But here are just some of the listed um, headlines on this page that had this diamond story. So here we go. Read more. Um, Major electric companies urge Biden to cut emissions 80% within 10 years. That's number one. Number two, all new U.S. vehicles could be required to be electric by 2035, new study says. Number three, official unveils plan to turn New York City into wind energy manufacturing hub. That's New York City, yeah. not New York State. Huh. Number four, Jaguar going all electric. Land Rover going majority electric. Let's keep going. This is all good from the Hill. Uh, I forget what number one, five, I think. Biden promises to cut emissions in half in less than 10 years ahead of World Climate Summit that everybody heard already. Uh, next one. Scientists say, quote, unimaginable amounts, unquote, of water will pour into oceans if ice shelves collapse amid global heating. Next one. New study says Earth could see six month long summers, which is another one I read, which is an interesting one. Surprise. Uh, next one. Surprising study finds sharks are key to restoring damaged habitats, fighting climate change. Hmm. And then the last one. Scientists blow up decades of thinking on why hurricanes are becoming more deadly. So besides the fact that those are all kind of interesting stories, the fact that this is all in the hill. Yeah, uh, that's what I was thinking. It, it, there's a, a difference in, uh, in how climate finally is being covered. And uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. Also, just one other uh, item, which I mentioned in the previous uh, uh, time zone, I now have it scheduled. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Chicago, David Archer, who did a study on what the, um, the, the cost of the, burning the, the true cost of carbon. carbon. Yeah. yeah, he calls it the ultimate cost of carbon, because normally when you hear that number, which might be $100 or $200, they're discounting the future catastrophes. <laughs> like if a catastrophe happens 50 or 100 years from now with a discount, economic discount rate, which is you could argue is immoral to apply to this, because we're not talking about your money. We're talking about your children and grandchildren's money and, and lives. Uh, but he decided to calculate it without doing a discount rate. And the number he came up with was, uh, well, it was actually $27,000 per ton of CO2 or $100,000 per ton of carbon. 
and we're going to have him on uh, my clubhouse chat club. It's going to be a week from Wednesday, the 19th at 1 p.m. So that, I think people might, I'm really looking forward to asking him about, you know, how did, you know, what, what did you calculate? You know, what were these future catastrophes in the future that people are ignoring today? Mm. So anyway, that's a little how bit. How do we price in the boomers that created the national debt and the climate change issues and now want to pass all the costs on to millennials? There's a price to that too. Well, yep, yeah, you could certainly argue that. Uh, as I tell people in my climate talks, uh, when I list what you can do, I certainly mentioned you should lower your carbon footprint, of course, and I also say that you should um, uh, you should uh, talk to everyone you know, including elected leaders, about the need for a price on carbon, et cetera. And then I also say, but I still get to fly your children my for, jet, right? And then I say you should ask do your I? children for forgiveness because of uh, what uh, we've done by ignoring this. That problem. sounds very, that sounds too cheap. Forgiveness. In the UK, we just tax pensions heavily and uh, that way you get your money back. But at $27,000 a ton, um, we're, we're not even, <laughs> not even the ball. Cause he, ballpark the, the, the gentleman the from university of Chicago that you're having uh, here in clubhouse next week, he calculates it at closer to a hundred thousand dollars per ton. Well, no, it's $100,000 per ton of carbon. And this is a big confusion factor you have to be very careful about. Um, there's carbon and there's CO2. So when you burn, you know, burn fossil fuels, it creates carbon, but then it immediately combines with two oxygen atoms to cause CO2. Right. And those oxygen atoms are pretty heavy. Right. So a molecule of CO2 weighs three point, I think it's 3.7 times a, a molecule of carbon. Yep. So you have to be careful of your units. It's, so 100,000 tons of carbon is the same as... I'm having chemistry. I'm having chemistry class flashbacks. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. Uh, and also, Tyler, just to tie new, uh, there's a news um, that uh, we covered a couple of weeks ago about Instagram launching a children, you know, child-friendly. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think there was a news today about attorney, 44 states, uh, territories, attorneys from they urged, you know, uh, Facebook to abandon. Uh, Instagram for the children yep. in the yep. behavioral and privacy concern. You know, the interesting thing about that is to, I want to tie to the universal research. Then I don't know if you guys remember earlier this week or uh, late but last hey, week. But whole, but you're leaving something very interesting out. There's two headlines yeah. today. And the, this is, yeah. this is super interesting that they both came out on the same day. Attorney generals from 44 states. So nearly every Amer attorney general in America states, uh, all of the attorney generals, essentially with the exception of six, urge Facebook to abandon plans to launch uh, an Instagram for kids, uh, citing research about the harm of social media can cause kids. The same exact day, an article came out stating, um, I, it'll take me two minutes to find it, that uh, in a very extensive study over many years says, social media use does not affect kids. On the same day. That's from the, that's from the Oxford News. So that's the interesting part. How... So let me give you, you know, I this is what I'm getting at. What what are the odds that both of these come out on the same day? Tyler, you did say that day that you're going to deep dive into who did the research. Why did they do the research? Correct. Remember this? We talked about this like three days ago. It was like, wait a minute. This is a really interesting article claiming that, um, you know, all of this social media usage of children has no negative impacts at all. That's kind of counterintuitive. It goes against a lot of the main narratives <laughs> that we've been hearing. And... Here it is in the news again today. It gets re-released in a new news cycle again today and by a lot of tech, tech press. And counter to that, at the same time, 
44 attorney generals urging Facebook to abandon plans to launch Instagram for kids. Gee, I wonder, let's, let's see if we can find the money trail behind this study saying that. I social... think that there's a third. Let me, trend, let me give, let me chime into no, that. There's a third uh, trend. So, there's so a third the research, trend. so the research the trend from... of cherry pickers. Yeah. So the research is up. <laughs> so the research was done by Oxford University, yeah. and uh, what is the chances that in the last twelve months, uh, you know, the sweet, research funding has been cherries. cut massively, right? And and uh, so so you know to tie back to the previous story about you know how these research... high paid cherry pickers, Greg, very high paid cherry high pickers. Paid. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Good. No, no, I think it's interesting that, you know, how, um, so, you know, sometimes with this research, the long-term research, how they, you know, use these kind of discounting and, you know, future and, you know, present value calc, you had to be very careful who actually funding those kind of, you know, Well, we looked, we, we dug into the study and it was the Huo family fund. Uh, exactly. And Tyler, Tyler, somebody yeah. did say in that room that uh, there's a difference of numbers between 1999 to 2009 and 2009 to 2019. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And arguably the more recent numbers are the ones that we need to be more concerned with because it was, it's, uh, who's the gentleman who wrote that book about precisely about this, the coddling of the American mind is the name of the book. Um, somebody knows. Hey, Tyler. It. Yeah. Tyler, yeah. pay no attention to the ever-growing group of children who are killing themselves yeah. at higher rates than yeah. ever before. Pay no attention to that over there. Yeah. Instead, pay attention to this study funded by very friendly people. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, this yeah, is this, this is, is very. This is John. Yeah. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I, I'm on the advisory board of a, a foundation dedicated to protecting kids from the adverse uh, effects of. I'll say uh, you're being paid. Uh, you're being paid not to pick the cherries. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Correct. And the science, the, the the solid science is overwhelming. This stuff is bad for kids in general. And and Greg's point about the suicide rate. If you if if that's not enough, I don't know what is. And what? Yeah, so the actual workers, the psychologists who are dealing with this, are in crisis. Like the frontline workers who are dealing with this are in crisis. And I will not be gaslit by stupid studies funded by people who cherry pick data when I can see it happening in my own damn life. I want to. Was it Doctor Doctor uh, Danish who pulled it pulled it out or something? We need to fact yeah. check again or something. Or? No, I'll, I'm yeah. going to find the article. It well, came out. It was in the headlines in the earlier session today. So I'm going to go. It's the Oxford it. Internet Institute. This is, yeah. you can this find is the it. problem. Yeah, a, we yeah. have a, we have a dearth of critical thinking because we are able to access media and headlines. In fact, you know, Tyler, you're probably not unfamiliar with the fact that tech news around the world is somewhat uh, part of the problem and somewhat the antidote because somebody has to come in here and call bullshit on this stuff, which you yep. do, yep. Uh, but, but we can't get everything. Yeah, here we it is. Everything. I got it right here. It was in the, uh, here it is. Study finds no link. And this is dated, uh, yeah, the last few days. And it's uh, Forbes, by the way. And it's the editor's pick, no less. Here we go. Editor's pick from Forbes. Study finds no link between time teens spend on tech devices and mental health problems. There is, quote unquote, little evidence of a link between teens technology use and mental health problems, according to a new Oxford University study published today, which could throw into question the myriad of policies and laws implemented under the long held assumptions that technology is harmful to children. So uh, and then we dug into the source of this, and it's from sagepub.com journals. And then at the very bottom of that, it says and it shows who the funding is by the who, uh, let me spell it correctly. It's a uh, an Asian last name. I believe it was H-U-O Foundation. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's called the Huo Family so, Foundation. Yeah. I mean, so social social media is actually creating the critical thinking problem because it's so easy to go plug in online and do the lazy version of thinking, which is letting other people tell you what to think. And then that very critical thinking problem actually allows it to persist and fester and literally end up in the death of children. So, and then the, like this is, it's it's totally nuts. It's like this weird paradoxical, self-fulfilling prophecy uh, and i think we should uh, we should be extreme we should eliminate it with extreme prejudice and go more towards these uh, types of environments where somebody can at least stand up and and say stuff like this in a way that's productive and not in a way that you can just turn off and flip to the next channel but what are well, the sadly, odds so, so greg, sadly, greg actually I, a question I, for you can I, sorry can i just can i just interject greg, I have a question. Um, um, like, do you think, what, one do second, Mabona, uh, Mabona, I love you, brother, but we have a ladies first policy here. So we'll go to you right after Maria. I just wanted to say that the sad part of it is that it's all driven by advertising. The reason why people only uh, read headlines and I guess case in point, what Dan has mentioned, right? And all those suggested headlines is that so that they can click through and view another ad or, you know, whatever, as many placements as, as they are on the ad. And nobody really has the attention span also driven by all the social media to even go through an article that's longer than two minutes. I mean, a three minute read usually puts people off already, not to mention going through the whole study and understanding, you know, how, how it was conducted, who paid for it and so on and so forth. So really the, the bigger problem is that it's all, um, I think, embedded in, in the advertising model of how media works today. Well, you get the same dopamine hit from getting a confirmation of your existing bias on social media that you do by going and building something in the world. Yeah, it, it's, it's just crazy. cheaper. Yeah, so, but it's just cheaper. Amazing, amazing. At a million eggs speed, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's another thing. To Mabwana. Thank you. Uh, sorry, about, sorry about that, No, Maria. no problem. Um, I just wanted to... I wanted to just uh, ask Greg and also Tyler, you can chime in anyone else. Um, is this just, um, you know, we're, we're going through the same thing. We went through with cigarettes and, and sugary water drinks where these big corporations essentially uh, realized that all new users need to come from, you know, kids essentially. Uh, and they're probably seeing a fall off of their users once they get to a certain age. Um, you know, is, is, is social media really primed by young users? You know, is Facebook launching Instagram for kids the only way to get them hooked early enough to monetize them over their life? I'm just curious about whether that's a, an angle to consider on top of the, what Maria was saying about yeah. advertising. TLV. Essentially um, get them so, in early or they're screwed if they don't get in so, early. So, so it is, but, it, but I'm a big fan of the phrase that history doesn't often repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. Um, and so the difference here uh, is that the rhyme is getting a little scarier uh, everybody's seen the social dilemma, uh, but and there's some true stuff in it and some not true stuff in it. But the difference here is that it is similar. They're doing the same thing to grab kids um, at the executive level. They're making the same decisions. Jewel did this with vaping. Uh, Facebook does with, with with Facebook for kids and Instagram for kids. Um, they they want to get these uh, kids earlier in. Microsoft did this with Microsoft Word in the classrooms. The difference now is that the product that is being delivered is tailor-made to the, uh, to the dopamine receptors of the, of the children uh, that it hits on an individual basis through this tool of machine learning. And so unlike the cigarette, where it's not uniformly distributed how addicted uh, kids could be to it, this one is almost uniformly distributed 
Um, kids who are resilient to social media, it's basically none of them unless their parents um, help. Um, and even then, it's an uphill battle because of the ridiculous per level of personalization that the addictive component in this can have. Well, there's another... To ben, to, I, to I have a... To, to, to one second. Point, I just have, just quick. Yeah, I just have go one on, question on. here. Uh, sorry. Um, has anybody... Does anybody have any data on how this impacts um, a little backward socioeconomic countries like India where, you know, we are being advertised uh, a life that, uh, you know, most of us can't afford? Oh, interesting. I, I was going to bring up the point that um, it's interesting from an internet advertising perspective, uh, the based on data, no, a data-based internet advertising perspective. Perspective of the the earlier in the user's life uh, cycle, the kind of more intimately you can develop a profile about that user. Where by the time you know, like our parents know us intimately because they knew us from the time we were born. Where if you met somebody when they're thirty, from that point on, you don't have quite the level of intimacy, you know, using AI algorithms to really understand that individual and what makes them tick in the marketing and their behaviors and their intents and their connections and their graphs and etc. But if you start when they're seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, it, it could uh, make that data profoundly more. Uh, uh, rich or relevant or what have you, Tyler? Uh, yeah, Tyler. Yeah, also, also on the psychological level, what it does is it conflates the real relationships that humans have with other humans with the social media or a group of people that you don't actually know—the followers, the the fans, and so on and so forth. And this is why it becomes so much more addictive. It's just like sugar because it's legal. You don't seem to find it so you know abusive but actually over time what happens and you can i can probably uh, see it from your own behavior is that you rather uh, spend time with people online than other people you know uh, offline and so it, it also happens i guess with clubhouse to an extent where you find so much value in their you know conversation that you spend time here but like with the social media, the addiction to likes, everything that Greg has mentioned, it's just, it, it embeds, you know, in your um, kind of, you know, uh, let's say it's, neural It's extra behavior. insidious. Yeah. It's yeah, extra no, insidious because it's also useful. It's also useful and we shouldn't get rid of social media, yes, but we should definitely correct. find a way to, to train kids and educate them in a healthy way to use social media with, with actually paternal and maternal characteristics being required Greg, who's, in whose interest is going to drive that right so you've got these companies and just to also pipe in the other aspect to this is brand loyalty when you develop that brand loyalty young there's less of a switch factor which is part of these people also hooking in young so it's in addition to the um skills and uh, the the hooks that maria was talking about the actual dopamine hits and the features and the functions it's that brand loyalty that develops young and then they have that profile into you and then um additionally though two things is what Greg is, as you guys are saying, are these people trying to hook these people young? Remember, these people still see their their products as benefits, right? So, so, you, so you've got to deal with the the, the pathology or however you want to call it, of these CEO, they don't see themselves as that way. They see Juul as healthier alternative or an alternative to smoking or social media as benefits, although it is exactly doing what everyone here is saying. And then lastly, Greg, to the, the teaching, like the parents will never be ahead of or able to understand all of the different um, dynamics going on with social media. You will never, these guys are geniuses. They have the best of the best writing these programs, well, doing the, the features and everything. But there was a class, there was something in here in Clubhouse last week should all kids, you know, should social media 101 be a required 
class. But two, two things, Jennifer. Yeah. Number one, Tonight, there are actually people in these companies that target children and they know what they're doing and they, and they actually, and it is like actually conscientious. They're, they're, no, no, they're I, they, doing are. It consciously. they are. But no, I know they are. I didn't say they two, weren't. They absolutely no, 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 are. I, yes. I'm just, I'm putting a fine point on it. It's not just people who are doing it unintentionally and they think their product is for the greater good and they happen to catch children in the net. Um, there's people who are actually. I'm not going, saying hey, that at all. We need to market not, yeah. early to children. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I'm not, yeah. not disagreeing with you. Just clarifying. Um, number number two, um, when it comes to the solution, I do think that parents are the solution because the public schools are actually going to be even more woefully behind than the parents. The problem with parents right now, especially parents who are in my age group, the millennials, um, they are so overwhelmed just keeping their shit together to afford a house and a family in the first place that this is a level of parenting that they can't achieve. They have to let their kids use the computer because they're literally both working to afford a mortgage payment. They do, but, the but to your past. point, are the parents going to be, the, I'm not saying schools are going to be able to do this because again, they're woefully behind this stuff, right? So, and I'm not suggesting any solution, um, maybe another, another sort of tech but parents like can I also I don't know if I can just quickly parents, add parents, something to hold on, hold on, hold on. Parents looking at their parents looking can at their children drooling while they are staring at an iPad or an iPhone and not going outside and not having close friends and not doing some of the things that they're supposed to do to develop themselves are imminently aware that there is a problem and they would absolutely do something about it if they had the time, money, or energy to do it. In understanding, in understanding, if they take their kids off this and the kids' friends are all on it, and how is it going to impact their all yeah, their other activities? Like certain off. school is well, online, so hundred percent agree with you. And look, so here it goes, Greg. I coach mountain biking, and we have parent, we have people who are saying the kids shouldn't be on the trails. I'm like, these kids are outside and off their devices. Let's just start there. But um, Jennifer, it's, I, it's I, much I more difficult. Than that. I got three kids, Jennifer. Right. So let me put it this way. So the way oh, they do it is. Agree. Look, the, the way they do it is that very sinister than that, right? I mean, look, my my son, he plays Fortnite. And then what happened is one of his friends saying he's opened up an Instagram account because he wants to trade some cards. And then you just lose, you know, you can't keep track of everything, your kids or, you know, the peer pressure that's, you know, put on them by being part of where you think is a safe, you know, you controlled a certain way. No, that Kieran, I, I thousand percent agree with you guys. I'm I'm not expressing this well. I thousand percent agree with you guys. So the question is this, Jennifer. One second, Greg. So, sorry, sorry. What, Sure. The, the point is this. So these guys who are designing these things, they are sometimes consciously doing this on purpose. They are not, you know, those guys, they're saying, oh, there's going to be kids using it. They know what they're doing. You know, sometimes it's just on purpose. A hundred percent. No, hundred percent. Yeah, but I, I think hundred percent. Uh, this is Michelle speaking. Can I quickly add something to yes, the conversation? Please do, Michelle. All right. So what I want to say is that I think, and believe it or not, but I think there's a perception that these tech companies are evilly trying to lure kids and so on but what you will see more and more is the programs they're putting in place to work with governments with schools and even with parents to actually help uh, curb that addiction and that's when regulatory it comes capture that's absolutely getting kids them. i'm so, just and I also point, um, can i just finish my point if that's okay yeah go ahead Michelle. That, yeah Thanks. Yeah, Michelle, um, go ahead. I, I just want to say that I, I do understand what we're saying. It's parents, but it's a bit more complex than that because there are parents, when it comes to an inclusion, uh, that are not unfortunately capable of helping their kids. But, um, I mean, believe it or not, but actually all the fans have very um, 
large programs where they're partnering with governments, with schools and with parents and different NGOs to actually actively work on the downside of those tools. And I also think we should look at the learning curve of those companies as well. You could look at it as a teenage growing up and that grew up too fast and it's also learning. So I think it's more like it takes two to tango. And um, yeah, I think we all... Michelle, I started I using uh, Facebook when I was 18. And now I'm, tw- uh, you know, 15 years later, I just don't see any benefit of you know, the social media. So I just don't think it's about how early you start or how you grow with the social media. I think, look, the, I think it sums up, right, what Mark Zuckerberg say, you know, move fast, break things. I think it's about time we say move fast, fix things. Right. They're not in that mind to, you know, I think we've broken too many things and now we're trying to go into the children. And that's where we need to draw the line. Guys, 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 there's a deeper problem over here. Facebook actually cannot verify my age. I can make an email and get my 11 year old brother onto the platform. They don't need to make an app for kids. There's that. And also just wanted to say a mission to kind of push back on your point, but also just acknowledge that for organizations that are of that size, you will always have this twofold activity. One is going to be the product team that's going to force, you know, that that is responsible for driving growth. And then there's the policy team and the, you know, people who are, let's say, trying to fix some things, but they all, they actually internally go against one another, uh, you know, driving some of those issues. And in the end of the day, the LTV, which is the user lifetime value, um, and the, the prolong, prolonging the LTV is the cornerstone of revenue growth. So just to Jennifer's yeah, point, just that's exactly, quickly, that's exactly something right. to that. That's, um, yeah, well, that's exactly right. right. They move fast. Just to quickly clarify on that and, uh, and actually mm-hmm. explain quickly how it works when it comes to the product roadmap. It's, it's not as siloed as, as it can seem to be. Um, there is, they work together. Uh, there's a product team, but the policy team is also pretty close to it. So it's not always... Um, a silo, but I, I hear what you're saying. Thank you. Michelle. Can I ask I, something? I, 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 unless you know Mark Zuckerberg personally, uh, then you can't really know the strategy of the company and how things come about. Uh, and so, look, I know some of these folks personally, and I can tell you that they are very cutthroat. And I actually, in a way that I respect, uh, because I think we need some of that. But but in, in any way, if you think that they have the best interests of the children uh, over the interests of growing the product and maintaining the company. They first have to keep the company running and their competitors are going after children. So they have to go after children too. And when they introduce uh, and support regulation, it's funny how it's always regulation that is super hard for small companies to comply with and really easy for large companies right, to comply right. with. Right, right. Greg, I'm agreeing with that 100%. Implying, right. Can I ask something as since benefit. I work with uh, Greg? Uh, I met you before, by the way. Hi, I think we met in the CEO uh, psychopath room or something like that but I'm this is such an important um, question and I mean I don't I work as an influencer right and I've been been um, doing that for the past uh, seven years now Uh, and that's why I I would like to ask everyone in this room what is it um, that someone like me I mean obviously uh, it's it's the platforms uh, that they and their algorithms that run a lot of things but what do you guys think that someone like me can do in order to um, you know, make not at least not make this worse. <laughs> I want to make this better, right? Do you run Point to the research. I, I basically think uh, there's two things that you can do. Number one, which is the kind of help your neighbors part of this, is write your Congress people and break up these damn companies who have become too big, um, and let there be more of a market-based approach so that parents actually have a choice and that it's not just one 
one or two silos of social media that your kids have to choose between uh, and, and any new one that they get on gets snapped up immediately and put into the Borg. And number two is um, anything that you can do to exercise parental uh, responsibility and encouraging this amongst your friends and family in your local network, make sure that you are making social media and how to be uh, a full person while being hyper-connected through the internet and social media, a topic at every dinner uh, table where the phones are taken away until the problem is solved. That, that is actually my number one thing I've been focusing on for the past couple of years. So that I'm happy to hear that. I've been doing a lot of campaigning, especially since, well, to get parents more involved because they really don't know uh, many times what the heck their kids are doing on, online. Look, or I what think is you're missing the on. point. Parents are busy working to pay the bills. And, you know, and social media, well, yeah. it's social media sneak through the window, you know, where yeah. the parents have no control. And, you know, but actually, I, if we break... Guys, guys, guys peer pressure. Facebook works well. on networks. Hold on, Greg. Is it every, every, hold, on. Hold, on one, uh, hold on one second. I want to go to Chip, who's been... I brought him up and he's been waiting rather patiently. Go ahead, Chip. I, I think the, the I don't want to solutionize, but I think the the problem is is path education and path regulation, right? I mean, we've we've spoken about the psychology of this quite extensively, but of course, uh, even three weeks ago, the European Union released this uh, this proposal around uh, regulating high risk AIs and making uh, uh, adding more transparency and data governance regulation around around how people's data is used on these social media platforms. And I think we can all agree that a, a significant amount of this addiction that, that that children and younger people have in on on social media is down to the 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 algorithmic assessments of their their behavior and then presenting to them a a, a more concentrated view of what they're more likely to engage with. I I, I think that it, it's very valid having this education and yes, you know, parents might not have the time for this, but it, it, there is regulation uh, that is coming into play by by some governments and some areas which which does seek to to try and reduce this. The problem with these proposals is that there's there's very little language around um uh around how we we expose uh, or how we how we warn users uh, about uh, about uh, how their data is, is used oh. algorithmically and there's very there's very little impact on big tech with these proposals so uh, i think some more opinions around this and these new proposals that, are, that have come out over the past few weeks you know does anyone have have any ideas around uh, the state of privacy aspect rather than the psychology Sounds like another pop-up that everybody will dismiss without thinking. Uh, no, about. Chip. There was Chip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chip, That's what Chip, Chip, there was an article that we. Yeah, there, was a, there was a headline in the past forty-eight hours. I recall, Cal, you uh, and the team on stage can help me recall. It was about well, both uh, Google had started it, and now Apple is going to add the kind of data nutrition information on the apps and the apps are forcing them to reveal oh, which God was it Greg you remember this did were you in the room at that yes. yeah oh, yes. Look, so so everybody they, but it's very okay. self-imposed so it, it's not even regulated you, right let me give you the actual play-by-play -play on this because I've sat in these freaking meetings okay. so the play-by-play -play goes like this somebody maybe at Apple says hey um we do all this stuff, but wouldn't it be great um, if we just told everybody what we were doing? Yeah, that'd be great because then we will get brownie points for saying that we're fucking you before we right. fuck you. But we're going to say it that, that we're not fucking you. We're just being really nice. We're not using your data. We swear, except they are. But because they get to choose the categories and they get to choose how the grades are and everything. But now they're doing the right thing and they're going out and giving you a nutrition, uh, you know, data nutrition facts. Um so that you, the consumer, are so informed when you're not informed at all. 
it's kind of like nutrition labels on food. Like that isn't exactly what food. Right. Come on. Who's going to read the Yeah, so, they're right. frame it as wait, 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 the, the, the product, piece de resistance, right? the piece de resistance is that as usual, Google says, that sounds like a good idea. We'll do it too. And now they're in lockstep as an oligopoly. Uh, by the way, right. you can bet your ass that phone calls were made uh, to, to determine this strategy, but you don't even have to make the phone calls because they copy each other and do the same thing. And then they check the box that the problem is now solved when it's not solved at all. And, every and single, but it's also the every, level the level of disclosure there is going to be so meaningless, right, as to what they do. So if you guys want to talk algorithms and Greg or somebody, somebody else who's an engineer, I mean, these things are so, so deep. But even disclosing what they're doing is close to impossible, right? So they're just going to say, hey, we're enhancing they your – all kinds of brown we, we use data. You choose, you choose to give us this data, and we'll use it in a way that benefits you. And that's basically what they're, you know, nutrition let's labels are doing. Let's tie this to some of the other headlines we had today, right? We talked, I think someone mentioned earlier about um, someone's going to, uh, what is it, diamond? Uh, they're going to create in the lab so that uh, they can get away from, you know, uh, the provenance and, you know, uh, the blood diamond, all of that kind of stuff, right? What people don't realize is that even within blockchain, it has this immutability, but what garbage goes in, the garbage stays there, right? People don't talk about that. You know, when you talk about AI, you know, whether it's the self-driving car, whatever the garbage data that we put in, that's what we get. And we are seeing that. And one of the points that uh, Greg just mentioned is absolutely this is also what goes on into Wall Street. So when we came here, we talk about crypto and how Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, all uh, you know, starting a crypto trading desk. What that means is why one of them in the boardroom, when, when we sit on these meetings, one of them say, hey, guys. What is that we got to lose if we go out there and say that, you know what, there's so much massive clients, our institutional clients are buying and, you know, uh, without us knowing, uh, let's just put out there, you know what, we're going to be embracing crypto, we're going to be setting a trading desk, right? What are they losing out? Only thing they're doing is that, you know what, we are, so they don't lose the client, they don't, use, they don't lose the money that is being, you know, uh, going out, there's so much uh, increase in the volume that, you know, they make money by, you know, you know, facilitating trading, so they don't miss out on that. When things go wrong, they can say, sorry, the regulators, you know, sorry, we told you so, right? That's what it is. And, you know, don't underestimate how a lot of the times, you know, when they make these kind of decision on, you know, it's meant to be doing good for you, it's, there's a lot of sinister ploy behind, you know, they oh just don't God. lose out in the short Trillion term. Trillion dollar businesses Absolutely. laugh when the government tries to regulate them because hmm. it is actually a gift. They're like, yeah. oh, this will be easy to get around for us. Yeah. It won't be easy to get around for small companies. We can absolutely do this, and it makes us look great. Right. And, and anybody asks us whether we're bad, we say, no, we're complying with the law. We yeah. have to comply with the law. Can, can, I read, just... can I read what the Facebook Oversight Board, uh, the text that, that is relevant to this? This, this is a quote from the Facebook Oversight Board Charter. I, Facebook is, is bound by the board's, this is the board that reviewed the Trump decision. Facebook is bound by the board's bylaws to abide by its decisions, but there are several limits on what the board can currently rule on. It cannot tell Facebook to remove groups, just individual pieces of content or pages. <laughs> and it cannot wait, and it cannot tell Facebook to change the algorithms that decide which content is amplified in users' news feeds? Wow. And you're also missing, you're also John, missing something else there, John, buddy. You're not yeah, they, reading. they don't want you to read. Yeah. Well, hold on. So, wait, reading? wait. I, speaking of reading, <laughs> here, here, I've got something very relevant to add to the whole conversation here. So, And by the way, we've been the top news in Clubhouse uh, English now for nearly coming on an hour. So congrats to everybody yet again in this time zone. It's becoming a more regular thing, and that's great. Um, 
in, in part due to fantastic conversations, which is not, uh, but it's, it, it takes a, a village to do something like this. So kudos all the way around. But here's the letter from the 44 attorney generals to Mark Zuckerberg uh, that they presented uh, um, just recently, today, essentially. And then he, we also have Facebook's response. And there's 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 info to dive into here that'll enrich in the conversation. So let me, it does, it, it's quite brief, actually. So in a letter to Mark Zuckerberg today, attorney generals from 44 states urged the Facebook CEO to abandon plans to launch a version of Instagram for kids. Here's the quote. Facebook has historically failed to protect the welfare of children on its platforms, the letter reads, and again continues. The attorney generals have an interest in protecting our youngest citizens and Facebook's plans to create a platform where kids under the age of 13 are encouraged to share content online is contrary to that intent. The letter submitted by the National Association of Attorney Generals points to research that links social media use with self-harm, suicidal ideation, and low self-esteem, as well as research on cyberbullying. It also notes that the risks of social media platforms being used to target abusing groomed children. Here's a quote again. It appears that Facebook is not responding to a need, but instead creating one as this platform appeals primarily to children who otherwise do not or would not have an Instagram account. In a statement, Facebook spokesperson said the company has, quote unquote, just started exploring a version of Instagram for kids and said the company is committing to not to show ads in that product. Quote continues, we agree that any experience we develop must prioritize their safety and privacy and we consult and will consult with experts in child development, child safety and mental health and privacy advocates to inform it, the spokesperson said. We also look forward to working with legislators and regulators, including the nation's attorney general. Uh, end of story. So with that, I want to see, uh, keep the conversation going. We must be careful to do it respectfully. Uh, and in a way that doesn't get uh, personal and insulting, etc. All those. What, what, what about the one other yeah, point? We should do. We should do a survey. Email ideas and, and please allow the, platform. the women. Yeah. Yeah. And la yeah. ladies, all the time. Yes, ladies first is the the rule on stage, and it'll be difficult with this many people. But please keep that in mind. So as you as it was. Thank you for the interruption, and and just a quick little uh, plug for tech news around the world, part of the Tech News Club where we meet twice a day, Monday to Friday, with a fantastic group of brilliant minds across every discipline you can think of. And uh, and we dissect and re-digest re and metabolize and regurgitate the news in a very uh, fun process, which we encourage everyone to participate in. And uh, But if you click on the title of this room, you'll see the Tech News Club and you'll see the, the upcoming events. And there's much more now than just Tech News Around the World as the Tech News Club. We have uh, several other events coming up um, that you'll find very interesting, including a VR event tomorrow to synchronize with the HTC launch event. Uh, uh, there's um, a day I room on Wednesday yeah, the at 6 p.m. Yep, you've got the MedTech News with Ben and Patricia and Heyman and the Midweek Bitcoin News with and Ben today, and today we have a today today we have a Tech News Canada launch, right? When, what time is yeah. that? Heyman? From now? That's uh, in about like uh, 45 minutes. In 40, yeah, okay, 45 perfect. Minutes. And then we've got tech yeah. for impact, uh, with a, which is a green tech one with Florian and Ame and others. And uh, you can look in there and scroll through those and see all of those there, which is great. Another artificial intelligent weekly news coming up with Ben and Sahir and Jean-Francois and Sid and Dave. That's going to be fantastic. I'm adding that to my calendar, uh, etc. So um, please do follow the club so you can keep up 
to date on this growing family of fantastic events in this community where we we do jump from one room to the other. So when this room ends, we will go to Heyman's uh, Tech Canada room to see if Canada does have does have tech at all. So that'll be interesting to see, Heyman, if what's going on over there in Canada. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just, just teasing. Wait for That's it. a good reason to go there. Don't get a U.S. So anyway, uh, back to the conversation. Is Facebook killing Talk, killing Tyler. your children? Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, but could could we flash mics and go in order? Yeah, maybe? we, we could do a little bit of an order. Possible? Do flash your mics if you've got a, a strong opinion on this topic of uh, Facebook. So Akil, uh, Shirley, Swebless, uh, Azlak, Carl. This is going to take a little bit of self. Greg, yeah, that's right. Group as well. Just going yeah. going going top to bottom there, as you saw everyone flashing. So go ahead, Akil. Yeah, I just want to say, these guys have no stringent ways of verifying uh, an age of somebody who's coming onto the platform. They're all talking about, oh, the kids are on the platform, the algorithms are bad. Well, you got, if you want to nip the problem in the bud, you got to figure out how you make the onboarding process more stringent. People maybe need to submit an ID of some sort to get onto the platform to really show they're 13, right? Because I, I personally got onto the platform when I was 11 years old. Recently, I tried to hit up a few of my friends who were, who were on Facebook, but it turns out a couple of Akil? them jumped in front of it. Yeah. What is the, what is the age for TikTok, by the way? What is, I don't know. We don't have TikTok in India. Okay. I, I don't. I, if anyone happens to know, I, I, I actually think that what this is really all about, it's not. I don't I actually don't think Facebook it's wanted. 13, 13 years old. I, I think it's 13. It might yeah. be. Here's That's my point. I, I don't think that Facebook actually wanted to do this because if they wanted to do this, they would have done it a long time ago. I think they're being pushed into it because TikTok is attracting the under 13 market, wh- whether or not Facebook's age is 13. When the, the times that I've seen it, which is not often to be candid, uh, it seems to be intentionally targeting, not targeting, but attracting a lot of very young users. And I feel like that uh, that is a if they get whichever platform gets the kids earlier can um, take over them as they age. So that becomes an existential threat to Facebook. And that's forcing them to drive the age down younger. That's my take on this whole thing. But so Tyler, that's a good point. Tyler, one of the things that I observed with my child, so he's uh, um, 12 years old and he plays uh, Fortnite. And I think what is pushing him to Instagram or TikTok, even though he's not allowed, His is that the messaging part of it. It's the messaging part of it because, you know, they need to trade some cards. And the, the guys on the other end, you just don't know whether they're adults pretending to be children uh, trying to because, you know, they can trade. Right. You know, there are things that you can share online. You know, for example, you know, when I give my son a certain card for as, a, as a present for his birthday and he can actually trade online. But on the other side, that's real cash. On the other side, you don't know who it is. There are adults pretending to be children. Uh, trading with these kids, right? So I, for example, about a few weeks ago, I, so I went into, um, so he opened an Instagram account and, you know, he got in a lot of trouble for that. But basically there was no age check. He put some random date of birth. So, and then, you know, he got, a, he got an Instagram account and he was talking to this kid. He was pretending to be another 12-year-old kid. What happened was that then as I read through the thread, I realized there was a lot of bullying going on. So, you know, there was a point that the other guy realized that, you know, my son is not going to let go of his account and also the, the money, the credit in this game. He started bullying him, saying that, oh, you're Indian, oh, you're a Paki, you're this and this and that. And then I realized that that kid actually went into my parents' Instagram and followed his cultural background. So there's a lot of that going on. So that's something you need to be very exactly. careful. When Instagram, says, when Instagram says that, you know, they're going to limit 13, you know, they, they don't do that, you know, first of all, right? I think the Amen. pressure is coming from, there is a wave of young generation moving on to TikToks and 
other platform because of the needs of the gaming world, right? Uh, so I think they just want to capture that. Yeah, and probably... there are also parents are uh, creating account for their kids, by the way. Yeah. It's true. There as, you go. As early as they are born. I know this from my uh, nieces in the Philippines. The children are just born one year old and then they put a Facebook name in their, in their just to post the pictures or whatever. I don't think that's good. Hey, Matt, I want to just ask you as a primary care person, have you seen anything social media related in your practice um, that do these things, are, the, are there stories within your field specifically, you know, amongst you and your colleagues uh, that the, the average person is not aware of? Um, in terms of uh, what on social media, just, kind just of like the general a potential kind well, of implications, implications that, 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 that customers, yeah. oh, sorry, patients. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of like I heard from. It, it, it's it's just you know Hearsay. I heard from family members that it's this. I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I heard on social media it's this. So it's a lot of just re-education, and I kind of have my go-to like, okay, these are like the reputable sources of things that I will direct you to. So it's not just me saying; it's also like backed up by. Uh -huh. Where are the psychologists at? Yeah, where are the psychologists <laughs> yeah, at? Yeah, I'm not kidding. Yeah, where are they? Yeah, do we have any? Because yeah. those are the only people that know. Yeah, I was about. To, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, I was looking through the Our audience. Primary care physicians, as much as I, yeah, yeah. I love them, they no, don't that's get fair. I'm just that's fair, Greg. Yeah, yeah. It's just that they might not be here. Yeah, maybe uh, Doctor Stacy can come Stacey on. In. Is she around? I, I I can try to find out if if she can come yeah. in, but I would I, I versus just but, bringing it. Like we've talked about this, so I don't want to uh, bring someone in who is necessarily biased by by my opinion. She has her own opinion, but we should ask. There are certainly psychologists in the audience. Well, that's fine. Well, well, is, yeah, let's do who is a doctorate who has a doctorate in psychology in clinical Greg, practice and wants you to make talk a great, on this topic. You make a great point, Greg, because look, with my son, so what I notice is the FOMO is real, guys. The addiction is real. My son, you know, it's just the fear of missing out what the other kids are doing on the playground. You know, it's it's really it's real, you know, the psychological effect. I saw that in my son, even though he was on it for two weeks. And the fact that I banned him from not being able to trade with this stranger that who was bullying him, that he wasn't even aware that he was being bullied subconsciously, it, it's real, right? I think it's a, I'd love to hear from a psychologist, you know, uh, what's, uh, if any other. I, I had friends when I was young who were sexually harassed on the platform when they were 15 years old and Facebook did nothing about it. That's a fact. In UK, for example, in UK, I can give you other example. In UK, someone, been, uh, you know, uh, there was a knife crime. Someone got stabbed by being, you know, uh, told to come with a certain amount of money and he, when he didn't turn up, he got stabbed. And, you know, so those things also happens. Uh, so all of these are pretty common, but I'd love to know what they, you know, um, yeah, broader picture on this. In Roblox too, by the way. Hmm. Uh, Tyler. Okay, so, yep. um, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, just real quick. Unfortunately, um, she is taking a nap. Okay. Uh, so I almost got in really big trouble there. Okay. But here's, here's something <laughs> I will tell you. Um, so uh, night, I, I was... I was sitting next to my nephew and he's super into Minecraft um, and he's learned to code. He's learned to do redstone. He's all these things. When people actually thought that he was having trouble in school, it turns out he was just bored to tears. Um, and so um, I'm helping him out with Minecraft and suddenly ding, ding, this message comes up in discord and it's a person who is talking with him um, mostly about his computer. Like what kind of computer do you have? What's your processor? And he's excited to find out these facts and I'm helping him find out the facts. And I look at the screen name and the screen name has 1994 on the end. And I realize it's a 27 year old man talking to my 12 year old nephew. Exactly. That, exactly. that he doesn't know. 
Yeah. Um, my nephew is care. seven years old, and then he, he exactly. he's saying that he has a girlfriend in Roblox four years old. I said that is impossible. Well, and, and, and so I look at this, and the entire conversation is innocuous. But I actually had to have a chat with him, and his mom is awesome, and she's actually really good about talking. She's a single single mom, although she you know has um, a, a partner right now. Uh, very recently. She's mostly been a single mom. She's done a great job of raising him. She's let him use technology and kind of fostered um, the best possible way that she could. She's also a teacher, a public school teacher, and we love her, but this stuff is so insidious. I don't know what this, I, don't, I honestly don't know what the plan is because there is nothing in the, like, I can't crucify this particular person because they didn't say anything that was actually looked like they were trying to get his address or something like that. But what is at the end of a rainbow of a 27 year old man that doesn't know a 12 year old child asking him random questions about his computer? Why? Why and let me tell you something else. Let me, uh, so let, me, let me tell you some personal experience. So what happened with my son was that, so this is a 12 year old, right? So there's on the other side, there's a 12 year old. I think he was about in his mid twenties pretending to you know, try to get 50 pound worth of credit from my son. And what happened was that he, he managed to get him on the Instagram to have a message chat because he thought he just convinced my son that's the easiest platform to transfer the account. And then what happened is that he had about 25 followers and Instagram being a visual platform because my son you know, doesn't go and look into this. So I went to the, his account and I looked through who he's following. All of the followers has a naked, you know, very inappropriate pictures. So the thing is, it happened very subtly, right? It's not just, it doesn't just stop at that conversation. It goes, yeah. you know, it's such a slippery slope that, you know, Instagram doesn't give a shit about, you know, they're well, not. But, but in particular, what are things that we could do to solve this? Number one, we need to find out why there's an epidemic of 27-year-old men who have nothing better to do than talk to 12-year-old kids about their shitty computers. Can, um, the, can and, I just say it's but, always been like that? But number two, well, well um, by the way, it's not just the man problem. It's just that, but anyway, uh, no, number two, Anna Marie, you I would want also to say, I would also say that we need to figure out why kids are having trouble connecting with people their own age. And it has to do with some of this online bullying. It's actually easier to talk to a 27-year-old man that wants to geek out about your computer than it is to connect with kids your own age who are getting uh, almost like radicalized by social media and Instagram and all these types of things that are putting bad ideas into their head about what is cool uh, and, and what is healthy and good. Greg. I think there's also another point, Greg, is that a lot of the kids, some of these kids who are getting spoken to this by these 27-year-olds, they are very advanced kids, you know, so the school system is also failing them because they've been bored at school. Yeah, because, you know, they, exactly. That, that's Greg, again another... to respond to your question, sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but if I don't, I'm literally not going to be heard at all. So um, I do believe that, because we're talking, someone asked the question about uh, in a poor place like India. I don't think it happens just in India. In actual fact, if you look at what's happening in the UK with kids being recruited for things like um, the county lines, etc. It was all, a lot of it was done on social media, via social media. I think every technology has its benefits and its disbenefits. And sadly, there's a holy alliance of the excesses that are commonly displayed on social media, plus things like poverty, social exclusion, and maybe perhaps lack of parental supervision. Now, let me delve deep into that. So I think um, the parents, the parents kind of get a tough rap because a lot of parents now are working really hard trying to put food on the table. But the other thing is that um, irrespective of how much a parent can look after you and care and just be around, technology, I mean, we've got to separate a technology and what it does from the culture that is able to be, you know, just 
just emerge using that technology right so um parenting is important but the emerging technologies are really important as well because ultimately for the parents to be able to police that they need to be ahead and i i would ask many parents here what parent knows about only fans like which parent knows what goes on on only fans or which parents are familiar with um, the grooming that happens on craigslist or even with things like discord which are Shirley, you're missing the bigger point here, right? Once the, Can I the, please let me finish? Shirley, please, once the kids... Wasted, please Shirley. let me finish. Please let me finish. Thank you. So, um, and I'm not missing the point. This is my opinion and I'm entitled to it. So I, I, there's a story of a guy called Breck Bred, uh, Bednar. He, his parents, loving parents, they're from Can Canada. They moved to the UK. And he used to game with his friends, very happy guy. He wasn't being bullied. He was targeted, well, not him in particular, but a um, pedophile targeted the whole group offered his server, he got to know their world, what they wanted, what they want, what they needed to feel cool. This guy literally broke him down psychologically, made him dependent on him, separated from his friends psychologically. So it's not just about, you know, people who are bullied, people are unhappy. These guys know what they're doing. They understand human nature. So for this to work, there needs to be a concerted effort, you know, with the parents, and, you know, of course, understanding the patterns. And this is the thing. Parents need to know. They need to be able to spot the signs. And it's not just parents, even a neighbor, right? We can spot the signs. We had a conversation about grooming and trafficking. It's really just about being a conscientious, conscientious person who is curious about changes in behavior. And then the other thing is, sadly, even if you do have regulations, sadly, it's always the poor kids who are let down by the system who just get left out because... Who is there to supervise them? Who is there to protect them from abuse and things like, you know, um, yeah, all sorts of nasties in, in um, let's say, uh, the homes, right? So this, this is my fear for children. So I think that ultimately, if you're going to raise a child that can police themselves and almost know something's going to feel good in the beginning, someone's going to offer you money, you're going to feel great. But ultimately, it's too good to be true. And this is the risk, right? So it's children need to be able to make that dis uh, decision and make that discernment themselves. And that, that's how I feel you can um, protect kids. They need to know. There aren't enough dads that. and moms who love dads where the dads go slap the phone out of their hands and make them go dig a ditch in the backyard and think about what they're doing and learn how to learn how to become uh, the young people that they need to become. Dads and moms are work need to work together, and that's what's not happening right now. And therapists would love to help, but honestly, they're all exhausted, and they're exhausted by listening to all of us not listening to them. That's why they're not here commenting right now. That's because they're out there in the field right now dealing with children who are getting hurt by these very problems, and they have no time to come in and help. And so actually, here's some things that we could do. Number one, tell, help your kids become therapists. Help your kids become therapists and teach them this might be a good thing to do. It's a great career option. There need to be more of them. There's too much load and not enough people to do it. Don't rely on your therapist to give you the energy to solve the problem yourself. Even if it is very hard, your children are the most important thing to you. Make other sacrifices to make sure that they don't fall prey to this stuff. Uh, invest in uh, having a household that has more than one parent. You need two parents. Two parents, you're already outnumbered. It doesn't matter whether you have one kid, two kids, three kids, or more. You're outnumbered with one kid as two parents. Ha keep families intact. It, go for intact families. 
be understanding of your partner and the differences and the things that they bring to the table that can help with these kinds of problems. Sometimes you need a big, mean old guy like me to slap the, the cupcake out of their hand, to slap the phone out of their hand and make them go do hard labor to understand what it really means to be alive. Sometimes you need me to tell them how to be a better version of themselves so that they can be attracted, uh, attractive to the, to the opposite sex or whoever it is they want to be attractive to so that they can live a real life and not a fake one on social media. And uh, you know, it, this, is, this is basic shit and it is our responsibility uh, and we can't just foist it off on therapists. There's not enough of them, but we should create more therapists and we should take some personal responsibility for this stuff up to and including being better at how we foster our own relationships yeah. and understanding within them. Thank you. So I, with love. I have, no, can, I just, can I just push in a little bit? Because I, I did ask for sort of like order, mic flashing order, but it Carl. didn't kind of happen. Um, so I. Get in here, please. I just wanted to say I actually am a therapist and I work at the Department of Social Services in regards to helping families and children that are abused. I totally agree with Greg, but I wanted to make a point in regards to something that someone stated earlier about the 29 year old being on the phone with the 12 year old and that he didn't say anything insidious. Just the fact that he was having the conversation, that was a part of, as someone said, the grooming, but he was building yeah. with him. He well, was that, that was me as well. This is Greg, and I do agree that it is insidious. I just, I think it was hard to explain to him why it was insidious, and I, I'm looking for ways to, to explain it to him better. Well, the reason it was is because he was, it, a lot of times they don't start off as the monster. He was building rapport so that he would feel open and warm, you know, to him so that he would be able to engage in those conversations in the future. So Absolutely. that he would feel comfortable with him. So that was part of that process. Let's talk about something that you know about. Let's talk about something easy, something comfortable. So now later on, when I start asking you, hey, you know, what's your address? Or can you send me a picture? Or, you know, things along those lines, you feel like this is my friend already. But I also totally agree with you in regards to, yes, these kids need to get outside and do some other things. But social media is not just problematic for the younger kids as they become teenagers and young adults and the body issues and everything else that they are pushing towards them as if this is what you are supposed to look like this is what you need to look like and things of that nature. so it becomes a problem from the youngest all the way on up to the young adults as well but when you're looking at statistics when you're looking at documentation you can see things that are pro social media and how it can benefit you and benefit children and then you also see documentation and evidence on how it is detrimental so it depends on who wants to support which argument in regards to what type of information that they will push forward to you. Juanette, I'm so glad you're here because I think that it truly is the case that therapists are exhausted and working really hard most of the time. And we don't see a lot of them here on Clubhouse. My wife is, is one of them as well as a clinical psychologist uh, uh, working on you know, things like PTSD and psychosis, um, it, which, uh, you know, but, but basically I want to a hundred percent agree with what you say. We should listen to you more than we should listen to a headline on CNN or Fox news or whatever, because the psychologists are the front lines in dealing with this problem. And it is a double-edged sword. Social media can be used for great good and it can be used for great evil. And most of the best things that humanity creates are that way. And so psychologists and partnerships with parents between psychologists and parents are the way to solve this problem. We need more psychologists, we need more therapists, and we need somehow 
to free up time in the in the household for parents to to intervene on these things and not on a whack-a-mole basis but on a on a structural change basis teaching your kids about these things structurally so that they can avoid the problems in the first place and enjoy social media for the things that it is great at Carl? Yeah, I, I agree think, with I think... you on that. And can I just make one last point and, and I will be done. I totally agree with you on that. And the challenge is here. Communication. Because what you're also finding, because these individuals are on social media, they're not using an app such as this that is helping them to be able to communicate with their peers. Even, you know, if you're making a phone call or, or with your teacher or having to, to try to uh, apply for a job or something along those lines, that is what social media has crippled the particular age group that is really in tune with it. They don't know how to communicate. And for parents, start off very young with your children in having those conversations. What went on at school today? What did you learn? The more that you engage with your children in those aspects, the more that they will just tell you little things about what's going on with their peers or at school or what they saw on social media. We've got to start having those a round table at the at the kitchen table again, where everybody is just being able to sit there and discuss their day over a meal instead of everybody being off in their own corners on their video games or on their phone or on their streaming service so that you know what's going on with your children. Great point. Well, you. You, you, and, you and Shirley really, it, really nailed it. On, I just want to echo Shirley's point because I think she made some really excellent points and we moved on really fast. Shirley, as a parent of, of, of five, three boys, two girls, I think your outlining of it being really balanced in terms of the parents are smashed busy and the kids, it's so tempting to have like the digital babysitter. And then when at your, your point around, like getting around the family table, and to echo Greg's point of, you know, sometimes you do need to go out and teach the kids to dig, dig a ditch. It's just hard on both sides. It's hard for the parents and it's hard for the kids to get well, off it, this stuff because it's like crack. Greg, yeah, well, Greg touches on a great point, which is it's actually becoming an incredibly uh, emotional issue to take a phone away from a child, uh, a teenager at this point where they get, they will, in some cases, go absolutely berserk and it becomes almost like a... And uh, like uh, somebody might need to call the authorities to come in to oversee these situations. And I've seen this happen. Uh, parents on vacation here in Thailand and the child has a phone and they take the phone away. And it's not like it used to be. And that's where, um, you know, the both parents need to be on the same side and have a good strategy for how to deal with that uh, awkward situation. The other point I want to bring up, and this is an unconventional perspective I want to introduce, which is it's well known that social media platforms, Facebook specifically, there was an, uh, Facebook engineers who were lauding the fact that they could predict with incredibly high accuracy when couples were going to break up, often weeks before they did. And they know this based on patterns where they can see a, the status change of a couple from uh, in a relationship to single or whatever, uh, based on the communication patterns. Well, if that's the case, why couldn't they apply the same sort of um, um, knowledge uh, and pattern recognition to the groomings of you know people on these platforms and the children and how the, the age gaps between the two users and how the, the kind of conversation flows and etc. They should be able to get all kinds of red flags.
if if the humans aren't red flagging it, that their algorithms should be able to red flag. But they're, they're not constructed. To, but, but Tyler, the reason why they wouldn't Bad do that, press. and, and so this is as a, is they're not morally constructed to do that. They right. have no the the points that Greg has made and Wynette's right. made. These are things about how you create a construct of. Uh, you know, decency and morality around parenting that they're just not built to do. I mean, they just, they, there's nothing immediately set in their code and their value system to do that. And so even if the technology is there, uh, they're not, there's no incentive, there's no sense. One of the things that Vanessa, and by the way, anytime, please uh, interrupt anyone else. Uh, she might still be here. Yeah, Wynette, please interrupt anyone else. We, and and this, this crowd is is uh, smart and wise enough to just, you know, give you the stage. So please take any time yeah. you want, even if you want to interrupt me right now. But what I want to say, one thing as a, as a parent, and, and I do come from a place where I was quite privileged in the sense that, not privileged, no, I've earned everything. But what I mean is, uh, I, I, you know, I, I can take the time for my children that some parents might not be able to. But I made big career choices, big career choices in order that I can pick up my kids three days a week. That was my constraint. Right. As they as they're growing up and they're now growing up um, 16 and 18 now. But uh, three days a week, I moved back to the UK in order to do that, because then my wife could do other things she wanted to do here. Um, and it could be pick them up from school three days a week and try to have dinner with them at least four nights a week during the week. Right. And that dinner was everything for us. So for Anushka, she's on this platform. You can ask her about it. We used to sit down with the dinner, no phones, nothing. Right. And the, and the challenge here is that is the I think somebody Akil or somebody said peer pressure, right? And uh, all of I the, did, the peer pressure that they feel that everyone else has something, and then we have to have courage as parents not to be conventional, right? And 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 maybe even lose some friends. And so that's a hard bit. Yeah. Can I? Let me add no, to that. No, 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 no. Uh, we're going to Anna Marie, who's been waiting patiently and being for uh, a Finn. Uh, doesn't have the American sensibilities to just talk over everybody. So, Anne-Marie, the floor is yours. actually appreciated the extra minutes to listen to Greg's perspective and and Shirley and, and Karen. Um, so I'm the mother of um, a sixth and seventh grader, and I had a couple of comments on this. Um, my seventh grader is probably the happiest you'll ever see her when she's online playing video games so less so with social media and such on her phone but as she engages with peers and, and we've gotten to know sort of like quote unquote know which kids and which names pop up on on xbox and xbox live because it all you know all of our devices are interconnected so we we see these names and um they're sort of like long-term fixtures but if i had to tell you the ages of each of those um quote unquote online friends I, I couldn't do so and we've had many conversations with her about how you know um, you know like the movie uh, um, Ready Player One or the book Ready Player One was like you don't know this you know your your friend online you know could be Chuck in the basement who's 49 it's we've had these conversations with her about like what's your you know what's your comfort level what's your understanding Will you know if some conversations cross a line with you? And, um, you know, we only can can give her so much so much rope and so much latitude to to feel like she's confident enough to to see these things at the age she is. And we know how nefarious like some of these folks can be that are online. And I know for a fact that many of the people that are in part of these group gameplay are are adults. 
adult men, adult women, you know, and so the conversations and we keep her try to, you know, limit the games that are gratuitously violent or have like bad language if she's got her headset on or what have you. But I mean, listen, it is such a very, very fine line for knowing that there are certain things in today's age that bring um, a, a child joy that in, in life right now being stripped of their friendships and school for the past year that we want, we don't want to take, you know, that joy from her. Now, does she spend 20 of the 24 hours a day on uh, Xbox live? And absolutely not. But we have, I feel like the parent that in the tech world we live in, that not being able to have some sort of way to have simpler or better oversight over what's going on with these relationships online, i.e. validators through, I don't care if it's through blockchain or whatever it is can, can validate the age of those she's interacting with. And then some sort of simple way for information that can be flagged to be sent to our phone. And I realize these there's little tools out there right now for social media that do maybe a fair job of that, but I don't think there's been any integration in any real way to try to let you as a parent become more informed and be able to enable your children to make safer and better decisions online that can have that sort of immediate notification for you. Um, one other point was that Messenger for Kids has been around for quite a while now. So I think Facebook has been thinking about this for a very long time, um, whether or not it was by force or by choice that can be debated, um, Tyler, I think a bit. But my kids don't really use it too much, but they do have accounts and they get messages around the clock from kids, friends that are supposed to be able to be hand selected and hand curated. But it's a way to, again, indoctrinate five, six, seven year olds into using a platform like mes um, Facebook and Instagram. And then my last point was on um, primary care. So I was in with my daughter, same one I just mentioned to you all. And I say this in a safe environment here for her, um, her checkup in October. And she, she's at the age where she can fill out and is expected to fill out a form at her primary care physician on mental health and mental health risks. And the pediatrician had to pull me aside and show me the five things on that form that said like, these are major red flags for you to know about for your daughter and something that needs to be acted upon immediately. So while I think psychologists uh, and there's that that safety net there, they they are on the front lines, but they're almost like a secondary, like to to try to find somebody in a, in a sort of real time to try to address our daughter's issues and those things that we had concerns about her safety and her personal welfare. I mean, we're talking three, four, five month wait lists to get in to see people. And I do think primary care is truly the front line. Many pediatricians are the first ones to maybe intervene, flag, or identify things that we as parents just may think are normal teenage, I don't know, malaise, right? And this is very serious within our family, and we're dealing with it as best we can. But I just, I guess I would encourage everyone to be very open about, like, how others in their medical ecosystem can help us support these kids at, at such a critical age. And thank you for letting me share today. Can I follow that? I just wanted yes, to jump in really Hold on. Excuse me. Wynette. It's Wynette. I just want to jump in really quickly before um, there are 
too many points that are being made for me to just um, try to address. I definitely think what the last individual just said was really important in regards to, hey, some of the earnest, a lot of the earnest does need to be on the social media platforms and apps. But until that time frame comes, we are going to have to be those individuals that engage with the oversight. And just to give other suggestions aside from it being everybody gathering together for a meal, another way that you can gather together and enjoy your family and have fun, do some old school stuff like some board games. We've got to start getting the children back into the aspect of communicating and engaging with the parents and as a family, because we have to have some balance. Even though they may be on social media or on video games, that's fine. We don't want to completely take them away from that, but we also want them to have some balance. And I'll give you an example. Because of the fact that now a lot more individuals from a younger age have now started to engage in utilizing technology because of the pandemic and online classes. So now even all of these children who did not know how to log on or email or all of these different things are now being indoctrinated with it at an earlier age. So now that's how they're able to get them at that age. For me, I have, um, my oldest is 22 and I have a set of twins that are 21. And since they were in college, I've had their Instagram accounts, their access to it. So when they're messaged, I get a message. I can go into their Instagram and see who is actually messaging them in their direct messages. Now, I don't reply. It's just an opportunity for a conversation. Like, hey, I saw this person. They said this. They said that. And they're open enough in that respect for me to say, okay, guys, you know, this is how you need to deal with this. Because they're young ladies at this point. People are trying to fly them out and everything along those lines. And I'm, I'm saying this to you because it started early in regards to the communication. So they felt comfortable enough for me to have access to those things, to know mom's not going to breach my confidence. Mom is not going to respond and say things, but I am going to say, hey, because now I'm your consultant. I need to talk to you about this. And I think this is a concern for me. What do you think about it? Did you think this person was a little weird, a little strange? Did they need to say this to you? Are you thinking about doing X, Y, and Z? That's what I'm saying. If we're talking about enabling our children, we got to start early with the communication that we're having in fun ways, like playing games, board games at the table, but also a meal. So ways for those areas of communication that nobody But what if there comes time in the maturation of an individual, a 21, 22-year-old, wherein they would not want you to be looking at their messages? I mean, isn't that counterintuitive? I mean, I understand your point. And actually, I'm very open with my son who has a, uh, well, he has a high-functioning autism. And this is how we grew up like this. But I'm saying with neurotypical kids, that sort of maturation is not kind of neurotypical. They, they usually, at a certain point, they would want to have privacy. They wouldn't want to share with mom. So how do you address that issue? So, right, okay. Cool. A break. Um, one, I, I have never found myself agreeing with our resident Texan psychopath more than I have in this conversation. Um, a, apart from one Aww. small thing, and that is every time something like this comes up, something that's widespread and detrimental, um, the focus 
the 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 PR and the media um, is always twisted to put it on the responsibility on the user. We saw this. We've seen this with the environment. We've seen this with uh, petrol and fuel and oil. We've seen this with sugar. We saw this with alcohol. We saw this with cigarettes. And every time, very clever campaigns are brought out to shift the focus onto the user to say, yes, this is a bad thing, but look, we're just making a product here and the user has to be more, more responsible. And we're doing exactly the same in this conversation almost. And, we're, and, and that is exactly what's happening now with social media. The difference is somebody um, said earlier about how does this compare to cigarettes? When cigarettes want to A-B test, it takes them six months and 250,000 pounds. If social media wants to A-B test to see what's more effective, it takes them seconds, literally seconds, to try one method and then try another method. So when you're sat there as an individual trying to sort of resist all these different techniques, you're not, you're not fighting a one-to-one -one ratio. You're fighting an enormous system. Now, the whole conversation of whether Facebook, for instance, because a lot of this has been on this, and I commend, I think, who is it, um, uh, Michelle, who has sort of stuck around in this. And I know you represent Facebook and it has been a very charged conversation. So sort of, you know, well done for, for holding your own in this. Um, but the, the whole conversation of whether it's being done on purpose or not is completely moot point. It, it's a distraction from the conversation because it doesn't matter if it's being done on purpose. It doesn't matter if it's for nefarious. The effects are happening irrelevant. So we, now we've accepted that we can move past uh, and talk about the effects that it's um, sort of happening. People were saying about sort of parents um, sitting down and talking to their children and having these conversations about these children and maybe talking to them about the app. The problem is it's not Facebook. It's Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Weibo, Snapchat, Discord. Then there's the communities that these that children and my children have on Smite and Fortnite, Fortnite and Paladins, which are gaming. And then they talk to those people on Discord. So when you're saying, hey, you need to you need to sort of get more balance in your life and, and more headspace for yourself, because that's what we're talking about, balance. None of these things are inherently evil on their own. We're talking about finding a balance. Um, you're not fighting against one application. You're fighting against all of them. And I have a, I have a 17 year old son who's gone through all of these issues, which I'll go into in more depth on a personal basis because I think it's relevant. But when I'm when I'm talking to him and trying to help him find balance, I'm not talking about one app. You know, you have to argue against the friends he has on TikTok, a different from the friends he has on Instagram, a different from the friends that he has on Facebook, a different from the friends that he has on Weibo and Ubo and Snapchat and Discord. Now, if anybody thinks that that's not exhausting, how many people in this room have had a, a, a day at work when they've had to put up with 10 Zoom meetings? You are fucking exhausted at the end of that. Can you imagine maintaining all of these different relationships, maintaining all of these things like streaks on Snapchat, likes on Facebook, shares and views on TikTok? It's absolutely fucking exhausting for somebody who is still developing. Now, the conversation, it's worse than that, because the conversation between the parent to the child, there's, there's, never, there's always a disconnect between the current generation and the, and, and the, and the new generation, sort of the, like the adults through to the children and grandchildren, because new te technology changes society. And when we get older, we don't really like change. And it's harder to change. The gap that we currently have between our generation, my generation, um, and the, the new generation that's coming up is larger than it has ever been before because society is moving at such a fast pace. So the natural disconnect in communication, in understanding between a parent and a child has never, ever, ever been greater. It's not an impassable ravine, but it has never been greater. Okay, And you have people at the moment, obviously, it's... Uh, 
it's um, it's difficult at the moment because of the pandemic, but we've had issues with environment. We've had issues, we've been pushing issues onto parents to think about mindfulness, um, to think about education and finance. The world over has been struggling, sort of on and off. And people are supposed to be worrying about all of this and trying to make the world a better place while also bringing up their children a world they don't understand with technology they don't understand. And the point that was made on the technology, and I'm sorry for ranting so much, but I've been waiting for ages. The point that was made on technology is it is very discordant. So I'm, I'm very technologically minded. OK, I love IoT. I build um, things for the house and interconnected st- uh, um, things like Raspberry Pi and stuff like that. I'm very, very savvy. I work as a, 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 um, a professional developer and I have done for many, many years. So I, my 17 year old child, uh, my 17 year old son, um, so he, he came out as, as gay and th- th- this, this does have a point and it is very personal. So he came out as gay and very early on, we established that there was a situation that was extremely problematic, that was very, very, very dangerous. Um, this was at a very young age. And instantly, I basically took the reins at that point and said, OK, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that um, that he is protected, because this was this issue was up until that point. I'd gone with the, the mentality of let him have his own space, let him figure it out. This was too dangerous to ignore. OK, so. There are settings on the router. We use OpenDNS, for instance. There are settings on his phone. There are settings on all of the PC. Now, I'm extremely technologically savvy, and I am fucking exhausted keeping up with all of this, trying to bring in a system, a centralized system, that actually protects him while not taking away his liberties is fucking exhausting. And I'm a bloke in tech with a wife. I'm not a single mother, for instance, that kind of thing. Now, my wife, so sorry, I mentioned my son, because there's another aspect of this that we haven't talked about, which is the LGBT, because he's gay. We have seen the the, the dependence on his social media to help discover who he is, because in our area, although it's it's not too homophobic, thankfully, that still the ability to associate with people in the LGBT community is extremely diminished where we are. And he uses that for to, to discover himself, to find himself. But even over the years, we've watched him go down rabbit holes in different communities where he's trying to support his identity in the LGBT community in about six or seven different communities and appease the needs of every single different community. So he's being pulled in all of these different directions. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. And it's not just for, for sort of gay men. It's the same for, uh, for, for everybody who's, who's in that spectrum. And finally, my wife is an educator and has been an educator for over a decade. Now, she, edu- she works with six-year-olds, and that's really, really, really important to remember while I go on to my next point. She works with six-year-olds, okay? And she works with disadvantaged, mentally challenged, emotionally challenged, sexually challenged, uh, basically pr- problem children. Now, County Lines was mentioned earlier by a wonderful speaker. I recognize the voice, but I didn't catch the name. Um, County Lines was Shirley. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Shirley. Um, who, uh, in, in the UK, um, amongst many things, it also deals with the, the concepts of like um, grooming children and drug trafficking. That is, my wife, as a six-year-old educator, has to do regular training to identify that. Not only identify that, but when she started at the beginning of her career, there was maybe one or two what you would class as not problem children, but children with emotional uh, safety or sexual needs. Now her group is at 15 in less than a decade, it's gone up to 15. When she started, none of those children had phones and none of those children had YouTube accounts or social media accounts. Now, almost every single one of those six-year-olds has a phone. Most of them iPhones, shockingly, because we're not in an affluent area. These are six-year-old children. So 
anybody, I really want to say this, if anybody's listening to this rant I'm giving and, and all of these beautiful things that are being said and still thinking, eh, maybe it's a little bit sort of hand wavy and, and it's not actually a thing and kids, you know, adults just need to sort themselves out and kids just need to buck themselves up. I challenge you, all right, to go and find a group of 30 educators, okay, teachers who have to deal with this every single day and stand in a room with them, all right, and tell them that you don't think this is a problem because I guarantee you will get beaten to fucking death with the chairs because it is a huge issue. It's a massive issue. And as a single parent, you only have the data point of your own children. Um, as, a, as a psychologist, you have the data points of the people who can manage to get to you and health, mental health in the UK is still an issue getting access to it because it's still very expensive but the teachers you speak to them to ask them anybody with over 10 years ask them how it's gone ask them how it's changed because it is not recognizable to how it was 10 years ago and finally if we think this is bad right now imagine how bad it's going to be when we take into consideration the conversation that we were having earlier on today about vr and ar when facebook has got sort of facebook glasses or google glasses and that kind of thing that are monitoring your eyes and then they have forward-facing cameras to look up to to observe what you're looking at and can measure all the data about you if we think that social media is engaging now we haven't got a clue what it's going to be like going forward so yeah i'm carl thank you for listening to my rant awesome we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end it there thank you carl for that that was amazing and um we're gonna end it there because it's thank you it's the top of the hour but huge applause uh uh on the on stage and in our private dms and um we're gonna turn it over to Heyman, who's gonna launch the premiere of tech news canada and just as a, a friend of our community here on stage, uh, we're just going to... Do they have tech news up there? Do they have tech companies? I don't... I, who, 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 who the hell knows? But we're going to find out. Um, so uh, America's hat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you can see that by clicking on the title of this room where you'll see the tech news and the upcoming events. We've got Shopify. Tech News Canada. They do have Shopify. They have the oh, University yeah. of Waterloo, which All many right. consider the best tech uh, university in the world one. at the moment. So it's... Uh, they do uh, have something like many, like the 30 million people that live in Canada. Yeah. It's, hey, <laughs> yeah. hey, hey, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to yeah. hold on. We're going to hold on Diva. One sec. Um, I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody on stage again today. We, we maintained the, and held the top position for the whole second half of the three hours today uh, as, Ooh. as be, as is becoming more common. And it's, um, you know, the intellectual curious crowd here, let's keep it, the fires going and, and look at the calendar. And, and if you have, uh, if you want to address the intellectual curious crowd here in Clubhouse and you need a good spot to do it, that's what we're trying to aim to do is expand uh, the family in those ways. Uh, and huge amounts of respect for each other today. Sorry, yeah. I know Diva, you wanted to speak yes. there. Go but, ahead, Diva. Uh, yeah, that's right. And I wanted to com comment on that. That's that's what I was trying to say. But also at the same time, sometimes you would say that we need a psychiatrist here and say, and then you segue with anecdotal evidence anyway, which is what I was trying to say. You know, people have things to say. We don't need every time an expert. That's all. I've, everybody said anecdotal evidence, and it was accepted. So that's what I had to say. Thank you. All righty. Well, uh, anecdotes are the only real okay. data. It's good. <laughs> yep. Uh, 